65 investigates, Illinois has very tight rules for how cannabis can be transported and delivered. In fact, those rules are stricter than the federal guidelines for opioids, the most abused drug in America. Here's the story from Phil Rogers. Do we have more to grab? Yeah. We're at a distribution center for Cresco Labs in suburban Chicago. And what these workers are loading is one of the most tightly controlled cargoes in America. The cargo is legal cannabis, at least legal in the eyes of the state of Illinois. But the rules for how it's transported are spelled out in pages of state regulations. Security is aware of every shipment that goes out, where it's heading, what time they should arrive. That security actually starts all the way back when the cannabis plants are grown. Each plant receives its own barcoded number. And those numbers follow the plants and their products through processing here at Cresco's suburban facilities, all the way through packaging, transport, and delivery to dispensaries statewide. Correct. And we refer to as seed to sale. Illinois law requires cannabis transporters to move their wares in vehicles where the products are locked tight in a separate compartment. Then there's a second set of locked doors outside. The trucks can't be marked, and at least one crew member has to stay in the vehicle at all times. What is this? This is our um, tracking software platform. Cresco's fleet is monitored in real time. Onboard cameras provide a view inside and outside the trucks, and GPS will alert the company if the truck tries to cross state lines. We know exactly where they're at at all times. But there's a bit of irony here. Remember, in the eyes of the federal government, cannabis is still illegal. But the Illinois guidelines for transporting pot are much stricter than the federal rules for moving much more dangerous drugs. It was very casual. Um, all of the product would go into my personal vehicle in a, just a standard Coleman cooler. Cresco's logistics manager, Joseph Franks, told us he used to work for a major hospital transporting everything from chemotherapy drugs to prescription painkillers. Where would it be in the car? It would be in my back seat. The DEA's position on moving even the most abused drugs in America, opioids like OxyContin, is that licensees are simply responsible for getting them where they are supposed to go. The federal regs say all applicants and registrants shall provide effective controls and procedures to guard against theft and diversion of controlled substances. We do have uh, millions and millions of controlled substances that are moved through the system through the mail, through UPS, through FedEx. Former DEA agent Jack Teitelman now works as a consultant on compliance with drug regulations. If you decide that you know your your method of distribution is on the back of a bicycle and a, and a on a backpack because that fits into that neighborhood and you've never had an issue, then that might be the correct way of of making that delivery into that neighborhood. Twenty eight eleven. That is not the case with marijuana in Illinois. Illinois is the most heavily regulated state that we operate in. Heavily regulated and lucrative, with nearly $1.8 billion in sales since it was legalized in Illinois just two years ago. Phil Rogers, NBC5 Investigates. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Illinois Podcast. I am your host, Cole Preston. And before we dive into today's show, I wanted to take a moment to remind you of a change that was recently made to our release schedule. In case you missed it, we announced this change in advance through a podcast, episode number 220, so that you might have time to adjust to this schedule. As you know, or as you may know, producing our show takes a significant amount of time and money. 
we want to make sure that we're delivering the best quality content we can, which is why I've decided to release episodes on a different schedule. Now, I know that change can be difficult, but we are confident that this new schedule will allow us to continue to create and improve the content that you love. We also understand that not everyone is able to support us on uh, not everybody is able to support us financially on Patreon. There are still ways you can support this show. I just wanted to say that a positive review of our podcast on your preferred platform, such as iTunes or Spotify, is a great way to help us reach more listeners and continue to create high quality content. We appreciate any and all support from our fans, and we are grateful for your continued listening. So episodes, in case you missed it, will be released on a weekly basis with occasional bonus episodes and will be available to our Patreon subscribers as soon as they come out. After two weeks, we release the episodes on all platforms. So by subscribing to our Patreon for only $3 a month, you'll be able to exclusively, you'll be able to access episodes early and get exclusive content and behind the scenes access. In addition to the regularly released episodes and bonus episodes, I'm excited to announce that we plan to roll out a new tier on our Patreon page for super fans. So again, I know that change can be difficult, but we're confident that this new schedule will allow us to continue and create uh, to continue to create and improve the content you love. So that being said, we occasionally make exceptions to this release schedule, and this is one of those exceptions. There's uh, a pressing matter that we need to talk about today, and that is the state of the medical cannabis program. And to do that, I am joined by Katie Sullivan from Modern Compassionate Care. Katie, welcome back to the Chillinois podcast. Thank you so much for having me back, Cole. I'm so excited to talk about this. This is, we needed, um, and I totally appreciate you recognizing that we needed some time to like air, air, an airing of grievances, if you will. Um, oh, excuse me. Um, and, and also like, you know, it's, it's not just a quick thing. Like we, we try, we want to get this out in the media. We want people talking about this, but when it comes to the medical cannabis program, there are so many changes that we need to make to make this better. And like, I want to get into it. We have a list. This is going to be, uh, Katie and Cole's, um, diatribe against, <laughs> against yeah. the medical cannabis program, which, um, you know, for, I'm a, I'm a nurse, uh, cannabis nurse. I work with medical cannabis patients every single day. Um, and you know, about half of what I do is advocacy as well. Like, you know, in addition to seeing patients every day, you know, I'm, I'm trying to attend these meetings. I'm trying to figure out what's going on because it's really hard to do the job that I'm doing. And, um, it's really hard for my patients to, you know, access this as a treatment right now because of some of the things that are going on with our laws. So, and our regulations. So like, honestly, this is, I'm so excited to talk about this. We, you know that. <laughs> yeah, me too. And before we dive into it, I think that, you know, I should acknowledge that the entire cannabis program definitely needs improvement, but what our conversation about is, is about today is the medical cannabis program, which started in 2014 and arguably has not improved much since then. I mean, we can give credit where credit is due, maybe towards the end of the episode of some of the improvements we've seen, but really our focus today is what what we'd like to see, right? Um, 
And so I guess really quick, um, I will definitely, uh, if you're okay with this, I'll put this list in the podcast description for folks. I think it's good to not only have the list out there for people to hear it in this format, but also to read themselves and maybe share with their friends or elected representatives. So absolutely. And like, please, I'm hoping that as we have this conversation, this sparks ideas in other people. Yeah. Um, we want feedback. We, if you have another addition to this wish list, you know, that's what we want to hear. The, the, our goal is to make the voices of the patients heard to the people that are making the rules and laws so that this pro program works for them. Like this needs to be patient focused. Absolutely. Absolutely. So where do we want to start? Do we want to start on curbside since technically it expires in 10 days, 12, yeah. uh, 11 days? Yeah. And that sparked this too. So, yeah. uh, and I mean, I know we already had like a full combo on Chilinoy. Thank you. Your support is so invaluable, but um, do you want to give the background of, of the. Yeah. Look, um, sure. I'll try to set the stage. So, you know, for folks that don't know, when the pandemic happened or the the coronavirus, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, concern about it. The state of Illinois, from what I understand, and please correct me if I get a, any of this wrong, um, the state of Illinois, specifically the uh, Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulations, released an emergency ruling, a variance, temporarily, that would allow dispensaries to dispense cannabis curbside under you know following the specific rules in the in the variance and like i said initially that guidance was temporary um and and it was set to expire i believe at the end of maybe march i don't know soon after in, in any case it got ex it got extended and it has been extended until Last month, when all of a sudden, you know, several advocates brought to my attention that IDFPR had released a notice that said, hey, this is expiring on what was it, the 31st or, or yeah. So, so as you mentioned, we did a podcast episode to try to um, stop that or, or rather to extend the guidance. And, and that wasn't the only thing we did. I think that's worth mentioning. We wrote a letter to J.B. Pritzker's office. Um, which we never received a response on. Um, ultimately, the guidance was extended, and it's been extended, from what I understand, until the end of this month. Um, I believe in the last CROO meeting that we were in, they referenced that IDFPR was trying to do what they can to extend it, something to that effect. But to me, that wasn't very reassuring. No, I know. You know, and I'm not trying to diss the CROO. I appreciate them keeping us in the loop on that specifically, that that's a possibility, right? Right. But so, the clock's ticking, as you mentioned. It expired right. the 31st again. So. so here we are today. Yep. 10 days away. I mean, by the time some folks listen to this, maybe it's later, you know, because I'll have, to, I hope to post this as soon as possible. But so that the clock is ticking, right? And so here's my thing on this. You know, we can get into everything, but I feel like I had and you know, if you feel like you have a better point, but I feel like my best point from our initial conversation that we had is that all of these things that we're talking about, the pandemic, uh, people being immunocompromised, maybe their physical situation, whatever, you know, you can name them all. Mm -hmm. Those are out of our control. 
There's one thing that is within our control, provably. I mean, it's been proven many times that we can extend this. Right. Right. So let's do that. And and I think your recommendation or our recommendation would be to extend it permanently. Right. Um, so, it just so yeah, that's, sense. yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's something that was instituted, like you said, because of COVID, but it quickly became apparent that, yeah, this is a good thing. This is helping even more people than we thought it would. Um, like you said, you know, you can name the amount of people that access and use this service. And the state didn't ask either dispensaries or patients, <clears throat> as far as I'm aware, what they thought about this program. Is it working? Did it, you know, like they didn't do anything and they they announced as far as i know it's idfpr who is in charge of the dispensaries gave this information curbside ending on december 31st on either the 29th or the 30th of december so zero warning and no communication to the patients and one issue with this too as you know is another thing that we co constantly are talking about advocates one agency because idph the department of public health they're the ones that are supposed to contact patients. I don't think there was any real communication there. And I mean, again, not to knock this for context, there's been turnover with the leadership and people, you know, new new people coming into jobs there. But that seems to be something that continues to happen. You know, like we're being asked to just be patient, things will happen, but that's been going on for quite a while. And when you have so many different agencies overseeing cannabis as an issue, and for none of them is cannabis the priority issue, it's a, you know, this is what you get. It, you know, there's a lack of communication. There's, um, you know, there's someone dropped the ball here. A few people did. So, you know, patients weren't notified of this. Patients who rely on curbside, all of a sudden were told, or maybe even just showed up at the dispensary and were told you have to go inside. Um, that's not okay. You know, and to me, that's letting it drop. Who's thinking about these things in the government? Who is making sure like something like this is going to have an impact on people, but it wasn't really considered. And to me, it's like, come on, a lack of compassion for patients here. Like we, we have a, a duty of care to people that we are offering the service to. And to me, like deep underlying, this is a lack of in a way, taking cannabis as medicine seriously. Like I, I sometimes do feel like the patients aren't taken as seriously. If you were on a medication from Walgreens, you have a lot more rights and this is one where you don't. And, you know, we, that's not how this program should be designed. That's not what the point of, like you said, it's been since 2014, these people paved the way for legalization. Right. And it's important like, to Sorry, what was that last thing you said? I was saying like something like curbsides and no, like why would we take something away from this program that's working? You know what I mean? Like we haven't really done anything to improve it. And to be honest, these issues for medical patients have taken a back seat to the adult use legalization. Like that has all been rolling out and that's been the focus for the past few years with legislation and within the agencies. And, um, you know, there's some, some changes have occurred to, for medical patients since that's happened that we need to factor in. Like, let's not forget these folks. They paved the way. Yeah. Well, and speaking of paving the way, this started with what was called the compassionate use of medical cannabis. And it was limited to a small number of, might I say, extreme 
diagnoses or conditions. And let me just say that most of those conditions, if I'm not mistaken, characteristically, uh, or just like commonly, maybe I'm using the wrong word there, like a common trend with the uh, original list of conditions was that some of these patients were already immunocompromised. Correct. So they were immunocompromised before the pandemic, during, and obviously they will continue to be. And if there's anything we can do to lessen that, and we obviously can, I just, and it's just like an easy win for the state, a gimme. It seems like a gimme. I think so too. Unless I'm misunderstanding something. It's in place. And I think too, that it's just to the point like, and you know, we have heard some whispers that they are taking care of this, that there's possibility that a rule change could happen. Um, You know, what we don't want is to have a law, have to have a law passed because that is a whole other cluster. You know, like it's, it's a, um, if we can avoid that, that means we're patients are going to be waiting. So what we might see, sorry guys, my dog's here. What we That's might okay. see is um, the the variants or the curbside extended again. And that's sort of what, you know, we were talking about um, last night, the Cannabis Equity Coalition. We might see that extended again before a rule could be put into place. But the, I, I think the main thing for people to know with this issue and then relating to the other ones we're going to talk about is the state responded when patients started to complain. When patients and advocates stood up, they did stop. So let's not forget the power of our voices as um, advocates, patients, providers, because if we don't speak up, you know who's speaking up? The the business interests in this field, you know, the, the corporate cannabis, they are lobbying, they are speaking up. And, uh, you know, they're you know, while they, some of them are doing good things to help patients, it's a business whose main goal is to make money. We, the patients need the voice that is, you know, purely for their interest. What is, what, what are help, you know, like these patients have a huge burden. This isn't covered by insurance. It's very hard to access. We pay some of the highest prices. We'll get into that, but they're already having to jump through hoops to access this medicine. This is an accessibility issue. We know a lot of these patients have severe disabilities, are very ill. Why not? <laughs> you know, and, and this isn't something the state needs to do. You're right. They just need to say, yeah, it's okay. We can do this. So this is where bureaucracy is a problem. Like, you know, this is where it's a it's a just like, uh, it should be easier. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that people, you know, propose the one one agency idea and I understand the logic behind it uh, at a glance, you know, um, I guess what what it seems unclear is what the state is even actually able to do. And I'm I'm wondering if if they did something like permanently extending curbside, the question then becomes, hey, what else can you just do by rule? And I wonder if they are worried about getting into that situation because they very much put this all in the Illinois state legislature. Like if you ever and and I mean, uh, you know, whatever, but anytime I talk to like the CROO or any department, they're like, well, you know. They'll, they'll explain it to you, but then they always dish it off on, you're going to need to talk to your representatives about supporting a bill that will change this, you know? And so what to me that's always seemed unclear is like, here's what I like to say. Everybody in any situation has influence and authority. 
or lack thereof, right? Um, like a lack thereof of both. And it seems to me that the CROO has the office of the CROO and the CROO themselves has basically zero authority to change much of anything aside from the studies we're going to mention later. Um, they have influence. You definitely can argue they've got influence because they've got the ears of legislators in all these different departments. But I feel like that's a huge source of frustration. It's like, you know, that meeting we were in with crew, a lot of people were saying, hey, I'm going to piggyback on that. Hey, I'm going to piggyback on that. Like, and just kept saying these things. And I'm not saying that people didn't have valuable ideas. Some of those ideas I think we're going to cover today. It's just like, it's like I, I wanted to back up in that conversation. I did. I just kept my mouth shut though and just say like, hey, it's good to voice these, but it's like, are they going to exercise their influence because they don't have authority? Like, right. I feel like this is one of the main things that, and somebody else floated this idea. I'm sorry to keep going around, but again, I'm not trying to, this is not a diss on the CROO, but again, what, what do they, what do they actually do other than seemingly serve as like a, a, a help desk for everybody, but you can't get past that help desk. They're always like, oh yeah, I'll get back to you, but they can't. I mean, I, and I, I hate it again, not a knock either. Like I, um, I've been really, you know, when, when I first started working with CO, uh, CRO and going to these working group meetings, I was like, this is great. You know, we have a place to talk. And honestly, those meetings, the tenor of them has changed a little bit. And I do think it is, they have a limited ability to do anything so they can, you know, they're taking our complaints and they're very gracious about it and they're giving us time, but um, we haven't seen any action on those complaints. And that's the thing. And it, it, again, I, I agree with you, no knock on them. Like, the people working in the government, I know a lot of them have the very best intentions for doing this. It's a system problem, a, a systemic problem a lot of the time. Like I'll shout out right now to Department of Public Health Division of Medical Cannabis, the ones that work with patients, with my patients. I find them to be you know, one of the most helpful people I've ever worked with in the government. They really have done a lot for my patients and I, I, I love them. They're, you know, they need more staff. So I think a lot of these people are working in conditions that are not ideal and they're, they're kind of, they have an uphill battle themselves. And, you know, with the CRO meetings, they are kind of sitting there taking our complaints, but it's like, why hold the meeting if nothing's going to come of it? Cause we, it, it's a lot of the same people in those meetings saying the same things over and over. And it's like an echo chamber. It's like, we need to break through and make something happen, which is, you know, and I think some of that has, is going to have to be like this having these conversations, getting this out in the media, making this something that the, the state is held accountable for. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. The state should be held accountable. That's the state, you know, is there to manage this medical cannabis program. And it's like, you know, my hope and my thought is this could be an amazing program. The tweaks we are suggesting, it, I don't mind if I do for us, very nice lists we've made. Some of these could make it a, a model for other states. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about is like, look to other states, you know, specifically Michigan. I think that you and I both shouted out Michigan. There's other states doing this well. And, you know, like uh, there's a, been a lot talking about, about, you know, this program and even adult use, you know, the social equity stuff. It's like, there's been promises of making something groundbreaking, great, you know, novel programs and letting more people get involved, bringing more access to cannabis. But right now, what we've seen is a lot of it still has been just that talk. So 
with medical cannabis too, I think it's time to like, kind of say, Hey, a lot of this stuff to your point before, how many stuff could get changed by a rule? Let's think about this. Cause to me, that's not a bad thing state. That's a good thing. That is the easiest way to accomplish something. And most of this stuff, it's not, you know, when it comes to some other issues, there's debates and stuff, but a lot of these things, come on, tell me the argument against curbside. I've never heard of one issue with it. There's been no like legal action that somehow bringing the cannabis to the, the patient outside has caused a problem. Like there, th that wasn't it. It was just this variance expired. So, you know, some of this stuff is like, yeah, let's change this with, let's change everything with a rule we can change with a rule before we have to go dealing with the legislature. Yeah. And I want to oh. address, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I'm, uh, you gotta, you'll, you gotta move me along. Cause you know me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, going. I was about to say, I've got something that I think will cap off our, our curbside conversation, and then we can segue into some other issues. Um, I've got a good idea of one to start with, but I had, like I said, one last thought on curbside. My listening audience um, has voiced to me that they feel that curbside only um, benefits the current operators. And I want to say on one hand, I agree with the sentiment, but on the other hand, I disagree uh, that it only benefits the licensed cult cultivators. Okay. So on one hand, I see what you're saying. You got a point. They're the only people selling weed. And so yes, technically they would be the only one to profit, but they're not the only person to benefit. If I'm understanding correctly that, you know, disabled patients or just, let's just say patients, I don't have to characterize them. Patients take advantage of this service. And to that end, I argue they benefit. So I don't think it's fair to say that the currently licensed operators are the only ones that benefit, although I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I agree with the sentiment because I'm not a huge fan for what some of these companies have stand for or have stood for in the past. So, And I'm with you on that 100%. And to me, though, like, hey, if you want to attract the business of medical patients, offer curbside. Because I do know for a fact that some people choose their dispensary because of that. You know, like, so um, I think we should have more dispensaries offering that as an option. And honestly, the truth of the matter is not everybody that has a disability is a medical patient. So people using adult use dispensaries that have disabilities or, you know, other conditions could also benefit. And there's more people using cannabis therapeutically than are parts of the medical program. And some people are just how they consider themselves to be purely recreational users, but they also happen to have a disability or a condition. So that's something to think about for other businesses to be able to offer curbside. I mean, I think fair play. Absolutely. That that's what I was gonna say. It to 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 add on to that. This is something I think you said in the past. This like I feel like just hammers your point home. It's easier to keep this than to get it back. Bingo. Totally. Okay. So I'm just saying, I think that's that's a good good place to end there. So here's I think a good segue. This is a point that Mike Fouché has made on my podcast. It's something that I frankly noticed when I visited these agencies in the past. There's not a lot of people working for the state under cannabis. We need right. more. We do. We do. So, 
Um, and I totally agree. Like right now, one thing we know is a uh, department of public health in June or July is planning on they're updating the medical cannabis tracking system. So they're going to have to switch over to a totally new system. If they don't get more people on staff, that is going to be a disaster when people have to switch over the system, you know, um, and I, I have had conversations with some of the people that I work with there who, you know, they've put some thought into this from the patient's point of view. I think the system that we just got um, is not as user-friendly as it should be. This new system, they are aiming for it to be. I haven't like gotten a chance to see it, but I know, you know, some of the people working on it and I feel good about that. But I, um, and I, and I am echoing the sentiment, not just because like, I'm thinking about this, but because I know the state is too. And I know that they, you know, are trying to do that. They're trying to get more people. Like we, um, these folks are doing a lot down there, it, you know, in department of public health, I know, and in the other divisions, you're right. It's a small group of people doing an immense amount of work. And then they're also like kind of hampered by whoever's kind of controlling in the hierarchy above them. So they do need more staff. And if you're like a cannabis advocate and someone that loves cannabis and is willing to take a state job, apply, please. And then like, give us your number. We, we need more people that are um, passionate and care about patients doing this too, because, you know, there's the nurses that work in the division of medical cannabis. I know they do. So. Yeah. And another thing you just mentioned, that's really good to, to remind people of, uh, we covered it in an episode that releases for the public today, but it's been on Patreon for the last two weeks. There you go. Another benefit to subscribing to us on Patreon. We were sharing the news that that I, that I think we both heard in the CROO meeting, which is that there's going to be a new medical cannabis patient portal. Which Here's the key that I want to say. The last time we did this, it was an absolute train wreck. People didn't get communicated. They didn't know how to log in. Some people weren't able to log in. And to add... Um, I can't think of the episode number right now, but I, maybe we got with you or it was Rebecca Abraham and a few other doctors. There were so many issues with the doctor's side of the medical cannabis, por the new medical cannabis portal and, and the issues that were happening, frankly, were causing issues or were causing um, doctors that don't have the time to deal with medical cannabis to say, fuck it. I ain't dealing with this bullshit ass state website. And then they just skipped it. And so the only people that were taking the time were people like you that specialize in cannabis and, you know. That's so true. So, so many patients that I have come to me now, which like currently, you know, my business, I'm trying to get credentialed. I'm a family nurse practitioner to accept insurance. I should be able to accept insurance for this. I'm counseling people, whatever. That's a whole other episode. Um, well, kind of, we might hit on that. But, um, you know, the the amount of people that come to me that had been getting, you know, when it was a paper form and the doctor just had to sign off on it and that was it, one and done, people had a lot easier time getting this. Now there are so many people that come to me and say, my doctor doesn't do it anymore. And so in that case, they've had to make another appointment to pay, you know, out of pocket for this designation and, uh, or the certification. And it's just like, yeah. we didn't do, you know, I don't think there was enough training for people to say, Hey, this isn't that hard, but to be honest, if you're a doctor that's signing one or two of those cards a year, or, you know what I mean? A handful, maybe this is too much, which again, let, let cannabis clinicians take patients and take their insurance, make, get a copay. Like, I, I don't think someone should have to be paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars to access this. And, and because of that, you know, people, how many, I'm still dealing with the aftermath of that 
changeover people coming in saying, I just stopped trying to access it. Cause my doctor said, no, like finally I'm coming to you. Cause I, I really need this, or I've been paying the adult use price now and it's killing me. So that's something, you know, we need to, the education around this for doctors and, you know, it, and the federally illegal status is like the main issue with that. I totally feel like, cause there's plenty of hospital systems. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with, do they accept federal funding? If they do, they do not allow their patient, you know, they don't allow right. their talk to patients about cannabis signing cards, no way. So we don't have enough cannabis clinicians yet. Right. And like, like you, <laughs> for folks that didn't get it, if I didn't say it clearly enough, like you said, the folks that focus on it would take the time because they focused on it. And one of them that I spoke to in a report had to change their password like 50 times a day. So to your point of people that were only doing maybe a handful a year or whatever, yeah, they're not going to deal with the state's IT service because they can't log. Like, it's just like to a certain point, yeah, they're just going to send them to somebody like you and that's extra time and travel and money that the patient has to spend. So anyways, I wanted to just lean into that for a second. So first of all, folks, let's reiterate, a new portal is coming down the pipeline. You know, um, I did voice to the Illinois Department of Health that last time was a train wreck. And the person that was in that meeting wasn't aware of that because, like you said, he was new. Uh, but here's a good thing. He asked me for my email and he said he'd love to work with me on outreach. So that's it's great that the state is signaling that. Let's let's just hope that that plays out, you know, that that not only they have clear messaging, but they provide other people like myself and you and providers uh, with clear messaging. Cause it's just like, we need to make sure that, you know, everybody gets is aware so that they don't lose access. It would that's just help thing. it run smoother. You're right. Cause that's what's happening is people are losing access. People are losing access and they're having to take extra steps and the costs add up then, you know, like this, there's, um, well, you know, there's many ways that we can, we can address that. And that's like one of the main things I think, like the, the, the big list we made is driving at too. Like I right. the first thing we talked about, but I don't even know how you want to dive into this. Yeah. Well, I've got, I've got um, an idea of, of a place we can go here, but I, I just wanted to say that really quickly, it's, it, I was in an, an interesting situation where I was trying to recertify and there were these issues with the, at, at the time was the new portal. And my doctor was trying his best to help me. And it's like, okay, this expires soon. And I have plants in my house. If my card expires, what does that mean, doc? Right. You know, like this is a weird situation where I'm waiting from something from the Illinois Department of Health that would keep me out of legal trouble. It's a really right. weird. Right. If you have plants in your house, if you have your home grow harvest and you have right. a quite a lot on right. you, you know um, no clear guidance on that. Like mm -hmm. that's, we need that stuff spelled out. People have been criminalized for this and are still in jail for it. Like, uh, patients are afraid to access a lot, uh, you know, a lot of things. They still feel like they're doing something wrong. And I think some real clear guidance from the state would go a long way, you know, yeah. about certain issues like this, because, you know, and, and with the eye to let's not make this more scary or difficult for people than it needs to be. Um, these are patients. These are patients. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm looking at our list and and we have uh, covered quite a few. I'm highlighting them as we go through to make sure that, that we know we've touched on them. So, you know, let me just recap real quick how far we've gotten. You know, first of all, there's a new portal coming out. We think communication between the state could be much better. Um, and I think maybe a good way to segue or a good thing to segue into on our list is, uh, you know, an idea that came with the new portal, which is that and maybe you can take this one. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Fee for renewing patients who are having the lifelong certification, which is a new thing, um, added that they get a $50 renewal, but they can't pay that renewal right away. I think they have to pay 125 bucks for the first time and then then they can pay 50 bucks later. Is that right? Totally. And I mean, I just, I mean, I had a patient that I was explaining this to today and they're like, this is not fair. And I'm like, I, I know, like, I agree with you. So just for like the technicality of it. So for, so everybody knows the state now offers, and this isn't very widely publicized, um, you to get a, a lifelong certification. So what that would mean is that the certification from your provider would remain good as long as you keep renewing your card on time, you can keep using that certification. And that's if you have a problem that your provider deems as a lifelong condition. Now, a lot, a lot of conditions are lifelong conditions. Or if you've been having chronic pain for 25 years, come on, you know, like, um, most, I don't even want to say, I don't know about most providers. For me, I um, offer that to as many patients as I'm able to, because uh, I know the cost of things in the state. So they can, only the provider can add that, but ask your provider about it. And if you don't have, if you're not seeing a cannabis clinician, your regular provider might not even like know what that means. Um, it's a different thing than a terminal condition. So you wouldn't mark that just so people know that's something that causes a problem. A lot of times terminal means six months or less to live. That's a free card, but um, a lifelong condition would be what your provider would do. And so some of the, the other benefit, in addition to having that last lifelong would be that the fee drops to $50 for renewals. Well, most of these patients I'm seeing, not most, I'd say half. Okay. Um, they are already patients. So they're coming for a renewal and they're still having, and sometimes they're coming to me. And I don't know if this is because this is a first time patient coming to me for a renewal. They've had a different provider in the past, possibly like Cole was saying, this provider doesn't do the card anymore. So even though they have been a, a they could have been in the program since day one, they're still having to pay this 125 fee instead of getting the, the, renewal fee right away if they're a renewing patient. And so that's just something that I think, again, was like an oversight. And for the states thinking, okay, well, we're collecting an extra 75 bucks off of people, which is a lot. Um, And so, you know, like that's, that's an easy fix too. It's like, if you are getting, especially because this is a new thing, anybody getting the lifelong certification now is it's the first time they're getting that even if they've been a patient. So we need to grandfather those folks in. And if you're renewing, you get the renewal fee. Um, it's just, a, you know, again, we, we're nickel and diming patients. They have to pay all of this cost plus the cost of the cannabis. And a lot of them are really sick and they have a ton of other medical bills. And yeah. this is a big economy and everyone's on a fixed income, it feels like. So um, the state makes a ton of money off of cannabis in the adult use market. Look at the taxes that we pay. This isn't the place to take that money. Let pay, you know, like that to me is, yeah. So just know like there is a lifelong certification, ask your provider about it. That is something that, you know, if you have arthritis, you get it. You know, if you, 
a lot of people have a lifelong condition. You know that goal. Like it's, it's so ask your provider. That's something, you know, you don't want a provider and some of these people are out here doing this. They won't sign that because not because they're like concerned, but because they want you to come back again and pay them that fee, which is when you look at the situation that the patients are in, we shouldn't be doing that. We need to be making this a feasible treatment for people, which includes affordability. Yeah, absolutely. And just so everybody knows, um, Representative Bob Morgan posted in November of 2020 that he was proposing a bill for uh, a refund that would be granted to medical cannabis patients because at the time, according to his post, the medical cannabis fund held $28 million, largely from patient fees. It's just sitting there. Hey, that's the first time I've ever heard this jaw drop, but then like, and, and shout out to representative Morgan. He has really been um, a great advocate for patients. Thank you, representative Morgan. I know you watch every Chilinois podcast episode. So when you see this, we really appreciate him. Like he's somebody that if you're a medical cannabis patient, that's one legislator that's done a lot for patients. So uh, he's a friend in uh, Springfield. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just thought I'd mention that because, you know, wow. that bill died um, and then the pandemic happened. And so it's kind of been, yeah, like you just put, gone out of the out of sight, out of mind. Right. Let's bring it back up. Let's make people aware because it was twenty eight million at the time. They've still been accepting all these fees. I can't imagine what they have today because the patient count has dramatically increased since 2019 and 2020. Right. We've um, opened all these new conditions, which is amazing. And like, you know, look yeah. into it now, chronic pain. Okay. So if you, you know, if you have chronic back pain that you take Advil for every day, consider getting a medical card. It, it, it is easier on your system in so many ways for a lot of people. It's a better choice. A lot of people. And the same thing with, you know, I talked to a lot of women that have endometriosis or things like that. That's a chronic pain condition. So you, it, even though endometriosis isn't listed, it's a chronic pain condition. You can get a medical card. Remember that. So, you know, that's good. And they've also cut the fees in half. Now that's something props to the state. It used to be $300 for a three-year card. Um, now it's 125. So, or I guess it was 250 if you paid all three years at once. They they cut the fees 50%. It's a start. Sorry, I just realized it was muted. Yeah, it's a start. Um, another thing I think is worth mentioning, why don't we just knock the rest of these issues out related to the new portal? Uh, virtual cards are unpopular and I don't know. I don't, I don't, they seem a little like I know that Illinois State Police can accept them, but I just think that if you're like in fucking Mississippi or something and you catch the wrong sheriff and you're like, oh, I've got a medical card on my phone. They're going to be like, yeah, you can go fuck yourself. You're going to jail tonight. <laughs> you know, I agree um, with that 100 percent. That's totally true. It does look sketch. It does not look. And for some people, it's just it is. Um, it's we're it's an accessibility a lot of technological stuff, yes. right? It is an accessibility thing. And so it's sort of yeah. like. And I mean, I even said offering a physical card for a small fee. I take that back now that I've heard about the $28 million. So, <laughs> well, we yeah, I, out of that fund, you know, right. <laughs> I still think, though, the idea if for some reason the funds can't be used that way. I mean, I agree with your logic. I'm not trying to push back on you. I'm just saying that I like the original idea of the card as an option. You know, folks want to pay for it because the, here's the thing, like. 
I don't know what the carp would cost, but I got to imagine it's got to be like 15 to 25 bucks. Like when it comes down to it, maybe, you know, maybe more, hopefully not. But like, my thing is that this decision was supposedly made in the guise of accessibility. And it's like, is it more accessible to send a person a card or is it more accessible to force them to get a printer? And I know that we're not forcing them. And in fact, most states or sorry, most dispensaries are accepting the electronic version, but most people feel more comfortable with a physical version. And so they print it. Right. And it's just, it seems that doesn't seem fair for folks. It doesn't seem, you know, like it seems like there could be barriers to entry. So. I agree with you. Like I, it's just a, something I at least get one complaint for it a day and sometimes multiple. So, um, you know, I know that patients care about that. Absolutely. Um, I, we kind of already touched on this, but it, it's worth reiterating. The state needs to improve not only the IDPH website, but just all of their websites uh, with reliably updated and useful information. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's outdated on that website. Like it's it's definitely stuff up there that it's like, that's no longer true. Hmm. Um, like there'll be old laws, you know, it's, there's still, there's still places where the paper forms come up and it's like, oh. the paper forms should be nowhere because you don't accept the paper forms. Right. So there should be no way for people to download that, that is currently on the website at all. That's just a very confusing thing. So like little things like that, which I did hear that they are, um, working on that. So, um, I'm looking forward to seeing that because I think patient, there's a lot of people that are getting bad info from the state's own website. Shouldn't Good. be. Good to hear they're working on that. Well, that kind of gets us through our admin issues that we, uh, that we've got to discuss. I think another thing that is kind of related to this, to, to what we've been discussing so far, it's right at the top of your list in the spirit of affordability. I feel like we kind of dove into that with, with all these topics. So, um, yeah, share your thoughts about offering reduced fees for seniors, 62 and older veterans, SSDI recipients and low income families. I mean, it's yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that these fees, um, 125 or even $50, uh, you know, again, it's, that's not just the fee. They have to pay the appointment fee. They have to buy the cannabis. It adds up for people. Um, it's an, it's an access issue. The senior 62 and older is really not my idea. Again, that was somebody from IDPH who's advocating for that. And I liked that. I mean, um, I, people are on a fixed income now. A lot of people are taking their social security early anyway. Um, who, come on, who cares? 62 and older, you know? Yeah. That's that, that, that to me, that's a no brainer. You know, we already offer the reduced fee for veterans and SSDI recipients, but I believe if you're on SNAP, if you are low income, uh, if you're on Medicaid, they that none nothing is being covered by you know Medicaid. Let's just make this accessible. You know, I have some people. There are people. There are unhoused people who are trying to be in recovery right now, using cannabis as a um, way to stay off of heroin, and um, they are having trouble accessing this because of the fees are too high. And this person is, you know what I mean? It's like these costs for some people are too high. So again, $28 million. Yeah. And and we're going to get into more costs that our patients are subject to, not even necessarily from the state. So far, we've been talking about patient fees that go to the state, right? right. I mean, that's uh, so... I mean, in a perfect world, 
in a perfect world, and I think this is going to segue into your, one of your next points, you just go to your doctor and have a conversation about it and and get get it like you would any other medicine. I think that goes back to though you, the, the comment you made about the federal illegality. You can't technically prescribe cannabis, so you have to recommend it. So thus the reason for the card. But again, I'm talking about a perfect world. Um, I was going to segue into insurance, but did you have any thoughts on that? Cause I didn't mean to bring that thought up. <laughs> oh no, I like totally agree. I mean, why they, this, and in a perfect world, your doctor would be, um, able to talk to you about cannabis or at least, you know, refer you to a specialist that could, I think, yeah, what you're about to say, take your insurance to pay for this. You shouldn't be having to like hop outside the medical system. And in some instances, accessing a medical card in some, from some sources can feel very shady, um, you know, which whatever, I mean, there's businesses out there, there's ways to get it. And I'm all for access and people easily being able to access this at a price that they can afford. But why shouldn't you be able to talk to your regular doctor about it? And, you know, we're not there yet because doctors are not educated. Like even if they were allowed to talk about it, a lot of them aren't comfortable because they have been told that cannabis is a drug of abuse. They have never been taught about therapeutics. They don't know about the endocannabinoid system. It's in most medical and nursing textbooks. It is not there currently still, even though we've known about the endocannabinoid system for decades. So, um, Yeah. I agree with you. It's like, we, um, we have a ways to go. And because this is a plant-based medicine, you know, the way that you use it, the way that you educate people about it flies in the face of the traditional medical model. Right. Um, it's uh, what I love about cannabis is it's about patient autonomy. You have control over it. Patients have a lot of control. My job is to educate them how to use something for themselves. I don't want someone to be dependent on me telling them this. I want them to understand cannabis so that they can use it through their life so that they really can select things that help them and they understand the plant. And, you know, like it's a really cool way of doing things. Like you don't do that with um, heart medication, you know, or anything like that. Like this is, this is something where the patient has a lot of control. And because our medical system is so paternalistic, this is very different from that. The, this requires faith in the patient and the patient's ability to heal and to use this treatment. And so um, shaking some clinicians up to accept a treatment like that is also going to be a challenge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's that's why I love it. That's why I think this is... Um, powerful medicine, you know, and it's, it's, it's not easily tamped down. You know, this is what they're all going crazy for. They want to take the plant and turn it into a drug. But what we want is actually the power of the plant. Right. Yeah. And I, if I might add, I think the perfect world we're talking about is the world where cannabis is treated as it should, as it should be. And that, by that, I mean, it's descheduled, you know, like I think, yeah, you just kind of hit the nail on the head. We're applying all these traditional thoughts because it's in a schedule with other traditional yeah anyways i and i I mean as you know psychedelics this is Mm -hmm. going to be going on as you continue this conversation you know that i know you're getting into this year Mm -hmm. when you start thinking about that so there is plant medicines are coming to the forefront you know and i do think times are changing but it's a totally different it's a, it, it's going to require an adjustment from the the medical community. 
to open themselves up to a different way of doing things when it comes to botanical, natural, and, you know, even some of these more mystical, I would say, treatments for people. So, yeah. 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 So in the, we'll, we'll shift gears a little bit. We're still talking affordability, but just a different kind of angle on it. Like I said, um, I like this idea you have captured, uh, patients are paying some of the highest prices in the County for cannabis. Multi-state country is what I meant oh, to say. Sorry. Um, you did say country. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Not that <laughs> I was furiously typing this. So who knows what, what I wrote. Yeah. In here. And um, Hey, do you, since yeah. you, do you have it up right now? Do you want to take that one on since it's the very top? I one? Do, I have my... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what I've seen and I've like done my little, you know, I get annoyed with this. So we are paying some of the highest prices in the country. Now I cannot tell you how many of my patients, number one, don't buy from dispensaries or number two, they're going to Michigan traveling from Michigan to Illinois with cannabis from the dispensary that is breaking federal law. The cost difference is so significant. People don't care. And we're putting them in a bad position there because you know what? They're paying sometimes a third, half or a quarter of the price for for medicine. And some of these multi-state operators that operate in Michigan and in Illinois, they're selling the exact same product at a huge markup in Illinois. And as I wrote in this list, the only reason that that is happening is because our state is allowing it. It's not right. You know, it's really hard and you know, as a provider, um, you know, of course, it's best if you have a product tested with a lab report, it's et cetera, like the ideal thing. But, you know, people that are everyone was buying off the street several years ago. And when the cost difference is that significant, that it means act, people at being able to access cannabis or not being able to access cannabis, even at the risk of, you know, like breaking the law. Well, I fully understand why people are doing that. Like I fully do. I, you know, that's, um, and if our state would do a better job of bringing these prices down and making this actually affordable for people who are using it as medicine, we would see people shopping in state and we would see people. And I mean, it's not just medical patients that are going out of state, definitely everybody, but, um, like patients shouldn't have to take that track. And these multi-state operators answer, why are you doing that? You're claiming to serve medical patients and you are the ones that have these exclusive licenses to sell the medical patients. How can you extort and mark up in that way? The only reason you're doing it is because you're able to, because that's what the market here is doing. So limiting the licenses for medical patients, for medical dispensaries is serving no one, but the companies that are you know, it's a racket. Come on. (laughs) I'm, this is my biggest, my biggest thing. It's not affordable. It's not affordable. You definitely haven't stamped out the black market, you know, that you claimed that you wanted to do. That's not, if that's what you're trying to do, you need a different strategy because people are not going to pay an adult use customer paying $90 for a dusty eighth of mids. Right. Right. Well, so if I could, uh, I love what you had to say. Like, I totally, I mean, I, I agree. Um, you know, we need more, not only dispensary licenses, but cultivation licenses. Like the 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 licenses I've found, I'm still researching this for part two of the history of cannabis on Illinois. If people haven't seen our first episode, 
It's episode 232. We go through the history of cannabis in Illinois. We start in 1978. We go through uh, the medical cannabis program, which was in 2014, all the way up to the first day of adult use sales. And um, I am struggling right now to remember why. Oh, uh, limited licensing, stuff like that. Like, I totally agree with what you just said. Oh, I found out that. Sorry, I had to think about it. A lot of things are going on here. Um, the original medical cannabis cultivation licenses, from what I can tell, do not have a square footage limit. Now, their adult use licenses that they were granted as a result of the CRTA, you can read and in the law, but not in their stock portfolios, is limited to 210,000 square feet. That's adult use cannabis, though. They, so uh, from what I understand, these 21 licenses that were originally issued are what some people call the super licenses, right? Yeah. You don't got a limit. Um, here's my question, though, because I agree with what you had to say. I just wanted to add, I don't think we should only issue more dispensary licenses. We should issue more cultivation licenses, which would enable competition, which would bring the prices down. But you brought up an idea that I've never really thought of before. And maybe you didn't mean to, I don't know, but you said only because our state is allowing it. And I realize now what, what you seem, what you meant was allowing this licensing scheme to go on. In other words, they're, they're not allowing the true spirit of competition in cannabis. They're limiting licenses. It should just be that you pay for a license. You get a license just like anything else. Right. But I was going to ask you, this is a totally, I have never even thought about it before. You know how there's been legislation to limit the price of insulin we're talking medicine, right? And it gets a little weird when you start talking about because these are private companies when you think about it. They're not, it's not like, and I mean, I guess, sorry, I should back up. I guess the people that make medicine are private companies too. But what I was about to say is that these, you know, typically people just charge whatever the fuck the, they want when they want. But I was just thinking about the the insulin legislation and is, is that a possible, do you think that's a Idea. I've never thought of that either. And to be honest, I think it should be something that is very exciting. Like, um, let's, let's bring this up to Edie Moore of Chicago Normal. Um, I feel like the that should be. I mean, because think about it. I have patients that, um, and more than one, who have cancers that... Um, aggressive and are now totally being contained just by cannabis, they need to maintain that cannabis regimen. Okay. So it's not, it's not someone with their arthritis or chronic pain, which again, you shouldn't have to go without your medicine, but this is someone who, to me, this cannabis regimen, and we don't want to change anything about it because it stopped a tumor from growing. That's life or death. Those yeah. people, you, you shouldn't be able to extort them for money. And you, you, you know that companies will do that because they did it with insulin, which is sick. And so cannabis, again, this is where like cannabis isn't taken as seriously. But when I say that I have patients for whom cannabis is life or death or their quality of life, they have none without it. You know, I want people to take these patients seriously and they're bleeding them dry. And our, you know, we have a very unforgiving medical system here. Why is medical debt the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States? 
Um, people wait to access care all the time because they don't have money. People can't access the cannabis program, even though it might be able to help them because of the cost of it. The people, yeah. you know, I, I only talk to the people who can access this. How many people cannot access it? So again, you know, like I, some people might say, oh, you're being a crusader for this, but look like, yeah, I believe in cannabis. Clearly I'm a huge freaking advocate of it. I'm a patient as well. I'm a medical patient. And to me, this needs to be taken like this. We really do need to take this seriously. I, I, I you know, see people, you know, their lives are being changed by using cannabis. It's helping so much. And the only reason that they're paying these exorbitant prices is because this is like life-changing to them. But I got to say, you know, it's important to say, like we said, it that the the reason that insulin thing is so crazy is because it's so crazy. And so, like, and I don't mean to say crazy in a bad way. I mean, in a good way. Like, this is like a paramount piece of legislation where we're like, hey, you cannot pass this line for this, from what I understand. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I completely understand that legislation. But from what I hear and people that I know that have to acquire insulin like this is a good thing for them and they were like really excited for this with all of that said i feel like we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that the way that things have gotten done in illinois cannabis and it's kind of the theme in episode one that i was episode 232 that i was just referring to most of the change we've seen has been backed by these companies so I, I like what you asked earlier. I, I like what you asked earlier. Why, you know, you asked the companies why they're doing this, if they claim to be for the patients, why they're doing this. I have an idea of why they're doing this and it's that they're not for the patients, <laughs> but um, you know, they're really, they, they don't report to the patients. They report to their shareholders. So, and what do shareholders want to see more money coming in? I mean, look, if you're a shareholder, you, you want whatever you put in as your share to, increase exponentially and how do you do that you don't fucking cut people deals so yeah. i just have to acknowledge that like it's not that i agree with it but this is the fucked up world we live in exactly and that's why in a situation like that this is why the government needs to get involved this is yes. where the government can intervene to ensure things happen and like we talk about this in here like if the government and when you when you deal with these businesses a lot of times in the suggestions that we've made is like tax breaks credits because you've got to talk to them what they care about money you know right. so it you know that's telling them to do the right thing i mean for you for i like yes we get that you just got to do the right thing but in reality working in this world you know we need to give them some kind of a financial incentive to do this um we need to set up regulations in order to facilitate this for patients cuz if we don't we see what happens people are being overcharged and they're making money off the backs of sick people. Come so let, let's talk about something that I think is the best check for that. Uh, the best check for what you're saying, besides the idea that we started with, which is, um, you know, a more reasonable licensing scheme. In other words, I don't think we should, I'm going to credit to Shaleen title for this idea. I do not think she's a university of Illinois alumni, a, I love these ideas she's proposed. So do not limit the number of licenses which can be issued, but limit the number of licenses any entity can hold. And actually, Illinois has that as part of its law already. Uh, you know, One entity can only own 10 dispensaries. 
and one entity can only own like three cultivation centers, so on and so forth. I have pointed out ways in which it doesn't seem like we're enforcing those limits, but that's maybe a deeper topic. Um, but uh, I so aside from those two key proposals, which are not to limit licenses, but you know to limit the number of which an entity can hold. Home grow. I think this is a great segue into home grow. This is the balance to corporate cannabis. And I have to be, you know, clear. We're going to be talking about improving home grow for medical patients today and, and how it works in the function. Because again, it's easier to improve what we have than to come up with something totally new. But I do want to say that I fundamentally believe that every adult should have the right to cultivate cannabis. We'll pull up a bill that has died in the past because it's going to be relevant to some of our conversation with regard to how the medical cannabis cultivation law works. Um, so let's just start with it. Uh, you you want to, since you got the document up, what do you want to take on with regard to home grow access first? Oh my God. Um, okay. <laughs> That's one of our biggest sections. Um, it's the most important. I, yeah. Um, and I agree with you this. Um, I mean, one of the most important, I don't mean to, but yeah. Well, one of the things, at least for, let's see what, the, what is the best way to start? Okay. I think I kind of the number of plants, this, this issue to me is the, the most commonly thing that people ask me, um, the number of plants and what does the number of plants mean? And actually I learned so much from you when you came and that was a, that was a crew meeting too, I think. Yeah. Where you, <laughs> you talked about me. the home yeah. grow loss. Yeah. So like that was, um, I was like, yes, Cole Preston. Okay. I got to follow everything that he's saying here because you, you knew so much and, um, I get asked about this all the time. And, um, this is the number one way people can save money. This is how you can have control over your medicine. This is how you free the plant people grow. Um, and so right now the law is medical patients can have five plants. They can grow five plants at a time for personal use plants. Correct me if I'm wrong in any stage, it, it, it five plants total yep. period. Yeah, there's a little thing that I want to say. They say five plants over five inches. And what that gives you the wiggle room on is to plant seedlings. It's a stupid law, though, because how are you supposed to determine when a fucking seedling is going to hit an in, uh, five inches long? Like, that's really hard math to do. And and frankly, well, it's like, what are let's you going to keep it? A, it's hard math to do with a five inch seedling, a six inch seedling, a plant in a vegetative state. There's no, um, yeah, you're not it's getting stupid. high off of those things. It's not. And to me, if they, you know, I think they need to reevaluate this because as somebody, you know, if you're trying to grow your own medicine and keep a steady supply of it, um, your point right here, um, I, what I wanted to say, number one is it's five plants per house. That's the other thing. So if you have more than one medical patient in your house, doesn't matter. Five plants total. It doesn't make sense. Um, so it should be five plants per patient or how many ever plants per patient, but that's a, it doesn't make any sense. And, um, you know what, when you're growing, if something goes wrong, if you're planted seeds and you sprout a male and all of your plants pop seeds, something could go wrong there. And then you're set back. And, you know, I, I, it's to me very clear that the home grow, everything around home grow, there was a lot of lobbying from the multi-state operators, the people with the cannabis dispensary licenses and the cultivators that didn't want people home doing home grow. And I think that it's completely set up to make it as difficult as possible and as intimidating. And it's very, um, parts of it, very vague. So, um, it's a problem. So number one, I agree with you. Okay. More than five, you know, it should be per patient when it comes to plants, not 
how many people live in the house. You know, if they're, again, this is all glimmers of like, they're, they're trying to look for loopholes where people are going to do nefarious criminal activities, take business away from the licensed operators, et cetera. It's, you know, you're doing this to patients. These are people that are just trying to access a damn plant. Yeah, before we get too far away from that thought, because I'm so fucking glad you just brought up that the the licensed cultivators do have a history of lobbying against home grow. I maybe you mentioned it. Sorry if I'm high and didn't like hear it or retain it, but I felt it's important to put on the record the Illinois State Police were in, uh, among uh, people that lobbied against it as well. And so this is a case where licensed cultivators are lobbying alongside law enforcement. I'm sorry, but I'll just stop there. <laughs> Anyways, okay, so exactly, you know, it's like this is um, a desire to continue to criminalize this plan, is what I see. Um, and so, and then the second part, just along, okay, when we're talking about number of plants, I agree with you. This was like your add-in number of plants per stage: five in veg, five in flower. You have it lined up to go. Um, you know, if you know, if people want to have, you know, like a mother plant we need to be talking to people that actually do home grow to create these laws. Um, talk to patients. I think that, uh, you know, it's, they, I, they, I don't know who, well, obviously we see who's been like kind of lobbying about these things. And I think there's a lot of fear around allowing people to cultivate cannabis. We need to start letting some of this stuff go guys. We need to start letting some of this stuff go. Um, cannabis is not illegal here in Illinois for adults. Cannabis is not our problem here. <laughs> like, um, criminalizing it is a problem. So, um, I think, you know, and I think, I guess my next point right there was we need to review the guidance and rules for home grow. We are making it too complicated for people, too scary. And we need this stuff spelled out very clearly in multiple formats, a video, handouts, social media. It needs to be very, very easy for people to understand the rules around home grow. The way it is set up right now, it really scares people. You have to have it in a locked room with a separate key away from the, you know, it's like we are, this is micromanagement here. And I think that again, it's, it's all surrounding fear of this plant. Um, you know, we need to think about people are cultivating this in apartments. We need to think about, you know, making it easy for people to grow this in their garden. Um, and, I, you know, you want to have find some rules around it. Let's talk about it. But let's not make this feel so scary to people that they don't do it unless, of course, that's what you want. Um, it, that's kind of how I feel about it. It's It really feels like that's the issue. And I so and I, I mean, I think that's yeah, I've. That's what I wrote. They need clear user-friendly guidance from getting seeds, regulations about growing indoor and outdoor, storing your cannabis, how much, you know, it should just be right there, gifting it to people. That's a huge question you get all the time. Transporting cannabis, like that, that is, um, it should, this should be clear and upfront for people. You know, we, we don't, if you're so worried about people breaking the law, don't make it so difficult for them to even see what that really is or to follow the law. Um, like, let's not be afraid. We, a lot of this is just fear and stigma. And um, 
Yeah, I think, all right, now I want to talk about, because you had something to say about this. The big thing here too, seeds. That's step one. People can't get seeds. It was written into the law, as you know, and like, tell us about this. The dispensaries are supposed to be the ones selling the seeds. And literally, have you ever seen seeds being sold at a dispensary? Uh, no, no. And like you say, uh, the law says seeds should be sold in dispensaries. I've never seen it. In fact, yeah. Um, so, so I want to re really quickly say though, you know, whenever I raise this question, one of the critiques I give that I think is valid is, is it's kind of similar in this similar vein of curbside where they're like the only people that would benefit from this are the licensed cultivators. And on one hand, I agree. And on the other hand, I disagree. Uh, it, it's another option. Here's the thing. I agree with people that say that, you know, seeds are basically sold everywhere. What's what's the issue? Uh, it, by everywhere, I mean at grow stores. You can find them at grow stores, um, you know. And look, I, I'm cool with that, and I want that to continue. That's where I get my seeds. That's how I grew this weed, you know. Like, um, there's a lot of weed. Um, <laughs> so uh, but back to your point, Uh Seeds have never been sold in dispensaries. I've talked to cannabis companies that want to sell seeds in dispensaries. I mean, they tell me they want to and they can't. I've asked the state of Illinois, and we included this um, in our uh, follow-up episode to the CROO. So if folks want to see it, I interviewed the CROO back in the day. And one of the questions that I asked her about that she told me she'd follow up with me on, and she did, Um or they did, the office did. Um, I asked Danielle, uh, then CROO, about seeds and dispensaries, and this is their response on quote, uh, or quote unquote, to the CRO's knowledge, there are no dispensaries selling seeds in Illinois. I know that. There would likely need to be changes to our seed to sale software, BioTrack, to allow movement of dynamic products like seeds. And this is interesting. They add this. There is no requirement for medical licensees, cultivation centers, and dispensaries to supply seeds. I mean, I get it. Yeah, I, there's no requirement for them to create, uh, you know, cannabis-infused jello shots. I get it, right? Uh, but but they should. And it says that they can. And but then you're saying the software can't. So if if you were wondering what the answer was, Katie, that's the answer from the state. That's Interesting. Okay. I was wondering that because, and it's like, okay, so a logistical issue. And to me, well, and that, now here's another thing. And maybe, you know, the answer to this, because I heard that there was some gray area about, you know, where I think a lot of people purchase seeds, which is through a seed bank mail order, um, where it's, you know, I feel like that um, whenever I've looked at those websites, it seems like, they're like, it comes in a very discreet packaging. Da, 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 da. So it's like, sure. uh, you know, so I don't know what the actual, like to me, it should be legal. Come on. Well, like, from what I understand in the, in the DEA, and this is not legal advice, folks, I am not a lawyer. If you didn't know the person that's smoking weed right now on the Chillinois podcast is not a lawyer, but I, I talked to some and, um, God damn it. What were we just saying? That's how stoned I am. I, the seeds, I, this, um, kid, oh, yes. Thank you. DEA has made points or made statements and you can Google this folks. And I can even Google this right now. I can stop rolling this joint and, and Google it right now. Um, I believe the DEA has said that seeds are hemp and thus, 
um, are legal to sell. Um, here, I'm going to share this article right now. I just actually found one. This is the great thing about doing video podcasts. Um, share. You can see my screen, folks that are watching. Um, if you're listening, you can go to chillinoy.net slash video to watch. Um, the headline from the cannabisbusinesstimes.com is the DEA acknowledged that cannabis seeds are legal to sell. So what does this mean for the industry? An official determination from the DEA could draw cannabis genetics market, cannabis genetics market into the mainstream if that's what breeders and growers want. Now, this was in January 2022. An official at the US DEA um, Drug Enforcement Administration quietly confirmed that yes, cannabis seeds fall under the legal definition of hemp. And yes, they can be sold openly and without criminal liability. So this is an article from November 1st of 2022. Now I want to back up for a moment and again, say that I am not a lawyer and I don't want you to take that as legal advice, but from what I understand, people are doing it pretty out and openly. However, there are still a lot of companies trying to play it safe and they, they employ those, uh, you know, classic tactics of stuffing them in a pair of socks or whatever, you know, to make it low key. Um, but from, from what I understand, it's pretty easy and legal to require, uh, acquire seeds online or even in um, grow stores, like I say, in Illinois and, and that people shouldn't have any fear of using it. Now I say that, and you might recall that when the CROO invited me for that grow thing, I started to say that and they stopped me real quick. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's maybe why I was like, what is the truth here? So I yeah. mean, that's where I got my seeds from a grow shop, uh, yeah. or, you know, like from a, you know, yeah, they didn't even want me to do what that. I just did. Like I tried to be very clear about, Hey, I'm not a lawyer, but this is what I'm reading online, but they didn't even want me to go there. Like, no, 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 stop. You can only get seeds and dispensaries. I'm like, okay, you can only get seeds and dispensaries. <laughs> so, it was I mean, live. So, you like, know, exactly. So I was just like, that what could you do? And it's like, but that's the conundrum patients are facing. And so there are really a lot of people that are like, well, I heard it's illegal to get seeds. And it's like, yeah. okay. They didn't say that. Now they didn't, I did try to, like, I pushed back on them. I'm not, I want to be clear for folks that didn't attend. I was just like, I was like, well, this is what I'm just telling you what I've read. And they're like, I understand, but let's not get into, uh, I can't remember what the word is. Like they, they wanted me to make, they wanted to be sure, and I kind of respect it, that I'm not spreading misinformation because I was asked to come and talk about one subject, and then we got onto that subject. So anyways, uh, thank you for asking that question, and thank you for bringing up this topic. It's a fucking brilliant topic, and yeah, that was our answer we got from the state in the past. Anything else on the topic of seeds? I mean, I just think that's it. It's just too vague. I feel like just what you're saying, come out with it, be clear. Patients need these. There's people that are looking for certain genetics, certain strains. Um, you know, they're, it, they should have free access to that because, you know, again, home grow is part of this medical cannabis program. Growing your own is a great option for people. I recommend it to any patient like who is interested in this. And I, I, that's what we need. We need clear guidance to the state, please. Yeah. Like, just and just say it right out there so that people know there shouldn't be questions when it comes to this stuff. This program has been going on for a long time and we need better information. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, 
where you want to head to next? I was thinking since we're talking about cultivation, we could talk about caregivers, but what do you, what do you got? Yeah, no, I think that's a good, uh, that's a good thing. Like that other point in there about testing. Hey, you know, that's just a, that's a side note that's for you, but you know, we need to take home growth seriously. I think caregivers is a thing though. Right now in Illinois, caregivers can't cultivate. So that means our patients, uh, you know, our sickest patients who need a caregiver or our patients that are pediatric, which that's a huge, uh, you know, part of the patients that I see, I see a ton of kids, their parents are not allowed to grow for them as the caregiver. Um, or if, you know, like I said, our sickest patients, our cancer patients, stuff, their family members who caretake for them are not allowed to grow cannabis if they're not medical cannabis patients themselves. So, I mean, there's, um, ways that, you know, we've helped people to get around that. A lot of people qualify for the medical cannabis program, but, um, that shouldn't be caregivers should be able to cultivate like this again. And again, I think it's this worry that there's someone's going to take advantage of the system and, um, Hey, handle things like that on a case by case basis. But to be honest, what you're doing is hampering a lot of people that some of the sickest patients that require the highest doses of cannabis for, for whom home grow could make it possible for them to be able to afford that aren't able to, because if you're not able to cultivate, or even if you're like a, you know, how many people I know, that's just like a chronic pain, like an older, (laughs) older folks who they, you know, they can't garden, they can't get on their hands and knees. They're not able to do all this stuff, but their child could do it for them. You know, like this is, that's the weird, like, yeah, yeah, that's the weird place we're in. Cause it's like, we got super sick people. And then we're like, but those super sick people can grow. You right. <laughs> like these people absolutely can't grow, but they are the ones who need access to the lowest cost cannabis possible, which is home growth. Right. So- and I want to just, you know, to talk about something that I think is interesting and is some wiggle room, but I have to reiterate, I'm not a, not a lawyer, but in the CRTA, which legalize, which allows for the medical cultivation of cannabis by medical patients, I'm going to read for our folks that can't see the video version right now, um, or if the text is too small for folks that are watching. Um, Cannabis plants may only be tended by registered qualifying patients who reside at the residence or their their authorized agent attending to the residence for brief periods, such as when the qualifying patient is temporarily – that's really big – away from the residence – temporarily away from the residents. Um, so I, this is where I bring up a recent proposal that died. And it's just interesting because they acknowledge this section, this section that I feel like doesn't get enough attention. Um, so this bill, which it was filed by Representative Carol Ammons, backed by Kelly Cassidy and a few others. Um, again, this is from the 102nd Illinois General Assembly. Unfortunately, this bill is dead. I have not seen the language reintroduced, and I am very upset about that, but we won't get into that. Um, it it proposes that adults should be able to grow. But check this out. Very last line here. It deletes the provision that cannabis plants may only be tended by registered qualifying patients, right? Because that would give you all adults the right to grow. And that also even include or their authorized agent attending to the residence. It is, I mean, it's part of the law. And the question is, what does that mean? What wiggle room does this give our patients? And I would love to see somebody, I don't mean to put this on your back. I mean, I can definitely email the FPR because I was just checking my email from the FPR. I'm surprised uh, from CROO. 
I'm surprised I didn't ask about this. I'll type up an email and ask about this for some direction, but I encourage listeners to do that as well. And I'd love for you to tell people about this, Katie. I will. Like I, you know, to me, I'm like, oop, I just found my loophole here for it, which, you know, that's good to know. Cause I had my mom caring for my plants while I was out of town. So I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that that's the type of thing where it's like, again, okay. You know, some of these things came up out of an abundance of caution when they were making these laws, but you know what, let's take a look at, have there really been issues? Is this a really a founded fear? You know, and so much of this is letting go of our former paradigm of cannabis is bad. Cannabis users are criminals. Like we need to keep looking at these laws that we made. And yes, is this still, you know, like, let's not become like these, you know, constitutional originalists. It's like, this should be ever evolving as we get new information constantly. And, um, you know, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about that were, that they originally came up with. And it's like, look, they added that provision in because they knew you're a medical cannabis patient. What if you go in the hospital, you're supposed to have your plants die. You know, not everybody's got an automated system, folks. Like they knew that that was something going on. And to me, a lot of this stuff is just common sense. It's like, okay, you, you, the people that wrote this were afraid of going too liberal and too far on the program and wanted to have control measures. Let's reevaluate. We're going to be coming on a, a decade of this soon, um, of this program. It's a yeah. great time to reevaluate, revamp it and make it better by 2024 unveiling it in the beginning of 2024 at the very latest um so yeah i um i don't know like uh, you know there's there is much we could do to do this and to me that that is a great loophole and like moving on to i know were you in that or maybe you were the one talking about this the caregivers cultivating in michigan Was that something you talked about during the thing? So that really was like, yes, obviously they can cultivate for up to five patients. Is that right? Yeah. Five patients. I think I don't, I can't remember what the math is, but I think. And I feel like it was like they had 12 plants or something like that. Yeah. Like 12 plants and you could have a certain number of patients ultimately giving you, allowing you to grow up to 72 plants. Oh, right. Cause that's, if you were a patient yourself, then you can also grow those plants for yourself. Now to me, that just makes sense. Again, there are some people that are able to do this, that have the space. This is a great way. You know, it's like, and it's putting another, it's bringing more access. It's another way to access cannabis. If you could, if, you know, there's plenty of people I know that are great at growing cannabis that would love to cultivate for patients. This could be to me, a like, like to me, a legitimate business where you could get someone very low cost cannabis, but still, um, I don't know if that's like making it a business, you know, some caregivers would just do it. Like you're yeah, growing, that's my you thing, have a grow that... or like you have yeah. farmland and you can do an outdoor grow. If you could grow outdoors, some stuff, I mean, you could grow a ton of cannabis, like there's, right. and you know, whatever it is. Like, I'm just thinking of other ways where it's not just dispensary or you grow it yourself, but there's, there's in the middle, there's people that professionally are cultivating this, that are caregivers that are making stuff for medical patients. There's a bunch of great people in this state that are excellent cannabis cultivators and are patients themselves who would be willing to do this to help other people as well. 
Yeah. And I think we can get through the rest of this pretty quickly, but I just wanted to ask you, are you good on time? Oh, I just wanted to touch base. Cool. I have to go for dinner at six o'clock. So okay, we shouldn't get anywhere close to that. Uh, like I said, I think we can do this in the next thirty, but we'll we'll see. I I have no. The thing I love about this podcast is that we can have long form, nuanced conversations where people can learn. Some I'm sure people. I hope people have learned today. One thing you brought up that I don't want to get too far away from is gifting, and yeah. so. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this. I'll put this in the podcast description, maybe for folks that aren't, but the state of Illinois has recently updated their website and uh, their cannabis website, and they've got an FAQ on it. And I mean, it's better than what I've seen in the past. You should see what the old one looks like. And if you want, oh I, can my God, actually... I, I haven't seen this. I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, it, I mean, it shows you, you know, who can grow cannabis, only medical, uh, medicinal marijuana card holders they say which is funny because the state of illinois has been really good about saying cannabis but whatever um non-medical users may not grow any amount under any circumstances so um but you asked about gifting they do have guidance on gifting can i give cannabis as a gift now you're not going to like the answer and i don't either but let's check it out Yes, as long as the person you are giving to is age 21 plus and you do not receive any form or payment in exchange. Now, what they don't include in this message, if I pull up the CRTA again, is that you may not give away home cultivated cannabis. So the only okay. cannabis you could gift is, uh, well, you know, cannabis you purchase. I mean, that's... And it doesn't say that, but that's like, that's the only thing you can, that's the only thing you can infer, right? If you can't gift homegrown cannabis, but you can gift cannabis, you have to assume that what they're saying is it must be purchased from the store. You have, you I mean, have to buy it from the dispensary. It's like, no, I want to give my home grow away. That's what I Yeah. So check this out though. Here it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I didn't mean to cut you off, but a registered, I got excited because I was like, oh, there it is. I was looking for this language. So a registered qualified patient who cultivates more than the allowable number of cannabis plants, which we touched on. It's bullshit. Our numbers are weak. Our, our, our numbers are not good enough, I mean to say. Um, uh, so any registered patient who cultivates more than they should or who sells or gives away cannabis plants, cannabis or cannabis-infused products is liable for penalties as provided by the law, including the loss of their home cultivation privileges as established by rule. I'd love to see that rule. I bet you they don't have that rule written. Um, maybe they do, but I, I just wonder what that means. Like, would you get a new medical cannabis card that says, yeah, this is a medical cannabis patient, but they can't grow. Like, what does that even fucking mean? Um, I, I feel like, has that ever happened to anyone? And it's like, what does that mean? I have to eat the mm -hmm. whole can of brownies by myself. Yeah, of course. I'm just joking. Great. I've just been following the letter of the law. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, these are things that, again, um, great that they did that. And I mean, I just want to have like a reasoning why, but it's almost like these issues aren't important. Come on. I mean, fine. If you don't want everybody getting I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, what I would love is like, hey, there should be like a complete cannabis swap meet for everyone that did home grow that wants to like trade away some of what they grew for something else. Um, I, I, I don't understand 
what the fear is around that, I guess, is just that you're going to be giving away cannabis for free. So people- The fear is that taxes won't be involved. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I think you're right. So- Again, you know, it's hard for me to buy into stuff when that's the justification for the law where it's like, okay, you know, and um, to me, to be honest, I want to see this be legal because I know there's a ton of people who can't afford medicine and if they could get it donated to them, it would be an amazing thing. But if that's illegal to donate some of my home grow, let's say that I have a ton of to someone in need who's also a medical patient. Why? You know, um, Um, you know, I can only eat so many brownies, Cole. I really can, you know, that's (laughs) the truth. Um, sad to say I have a limit. So, (laughs) um, you know, to me, it's like this, it's, it's, this is ripe for reevaluation and, um, you know, we've bro- we've broached to the state many times that we would like avenues for donated cannabis, whether from dispensaries, from medical patients who've cultivated, to be available or there be some way, because there's a lot of cannabis that gets destroyed at the dispensaries and cultivation centers that could actually be used and given away to patients in need. To me, this is something that, um, you know, there's people that w- would be willing to run this program. I think there's people willing to support it. Hey, offer the dispensaries a tax break to give us the cannabis that they aren't going to use anyway. And we get it in the hands of people that could use it. And I'm sure home cultivators, you know, like me included, you know, I'm to me, I don't need the, I don't need to use the cannabis from five plants. Probably if I'm growing five plants at a time, I could give that to other people even with five plants now, you know, but for some other people, they want more and I would cultivate more or need, or need more because they have to infuse it or make RSO, exactly. you know, like that requires more. Right. Um, exactly. That's you are literally, you know, you're not getting, you know, that's, and that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people that are doing that. Those so. are the sickest people. I mean, they, they need it like that. They need the most. Yeah. So, um, uh, you brought up a really good point, uh, but I want you to, for folks that didn't quite understand it, when you say the dispensaries have to destroy product, and I hope you enjoy my joke here, you're not talking about like how I'm destroying this joint right now. <laughs> no, <right>? unfortunately, <laughs> I've heard they have to pour bleach on it. I'm like, that just breaks my heart. I mean, what? Yeah. <laughs> All of it this- depends. It depends on your protocol. Uh, people have different standard operating procedures. I've heard of the bleach. Um, some people use soil. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It it depends, but it's all supervised. That's that's an interesting fact. There's a room where you destroy cannabis, and it's not like I'm doing to this joint right now. Unfortunately, it's putting <laughs> it into a machine. You you you, you process it. Great in front trope of, the state. of lighting it all on fire and then watching all the cops get really high. Um, <laughs> yeah, they destroy it in, a, in that. And so I, you know, I know that I've been told by people that work at dispensaries that, you know, even like when products are approaching there, you know, I don't see it happening like that often. It's like, man, I know a ton of people would be buying stuff. Like, oh, you're throwing away pot. It's a year old. All right. It's not as potent anymore, baby, but people would buy that at a cut rate. People could make a concentrate out of that. Like there's, um, to me, it's wasting medicine. You wouldn't flush other medic, you know, maybe, I don't know what they do. Yeah. And they I guess didn't, the medications expired. 
this could be this could be my own anecdotal experience so if it's you know somebody else hasn't lived this or seen this chalk it up to that but do you remember when there was a vape scare yeah i do i hope other people too remember that and if not just google vape scare you'll, you'll find it it's like people were freaking out they didn't know if it was like nicotine vapes and then they were blaming black market vapes but guess what happened there was a recall of legal cannabis vapes uh or rather i don't mean to say a recall in illinois they were basically told like you can't grow with this now it's been so long ago it's going to be hard for me to find but i'm sure if you google it you can find um the memo that went out from the state of illinois basically saying hey cultivators you can no longer use vitamin e acetate and etc etc all the other i'm not going to sit here i don't remember what the chemicals were but the point is is that there were products made with those things and the state i i didn't the places i went to they didn't destroy those products they sold them at a marked down rate so um you know just saying and that's what they do you with really older have products. Traced that back to the vitamin e acetate as far as i'm aware that they said yes that was what it was the vitamin e acetate when it heats up um converting into this toxic ketane i think is something it? like that and that's what was causing the vaping associated lung injury so the fact that it's like those things were still being sold and that that's the same thing with these moldy pre-rolls also so that we've had instances, again, we're asking people to pay a premium to buy these products at the dispensary and they are not safe. They are containing mold, even though they have a clean COA. So, you know, whatever happened there, whether it was what samples are being tested, how they're being stored, um, you know, again and again, I say to people, if the if it don't smell right to you, throw that away. Don't smoke it. Um, you know, like it, it, and there, and I cannot tell you how many products that I have had questionable, you know, when I went to Maine, I was able to smell the cannabis before I purchased it, which was like, this is awesome here. It's, there's a lot of times, you know, and for some of us, you know, maybe, I mean, mold is a big deal. And if you're an immunocompromised person, if you are sensitive to things that could set off a horrible reaction in your body. So why you we can't ask people to pay this huge premium and then not be able to say what you are getting is not going to harm you like based on it's dirty yeah and for folks that don't know what you referenced uh there's a headline from the chicago sun times what's in illinois legal weed sometimes contaminants sometimes testing fine so this is a series of stories um i'll throw this i'll throw this article that we're showing right now in the podcast description, what I'll also throw is uh, an interview I did with these two journalists, um, Stephanie Zimmerman and Tom Shuba. I think I mentioned in this article, it's funny, um, going through, it's funny going through doing this uh, just sidebar really quick before we wrap up uh, the rest of our topics, like going through the history of cannabis in Illinois. It's weird to see, like, I've seen your name pop up. It's like, I know them. I've seen my name pop up. It's like, oh yeah, that happened, you know, so Anyways, history is in the making, folks. But yeah, check that out if you if you folks are wondering what you were referencing with that. Um, I'll throw a link in the podcast description for that. Um, so one just a really quick sidebar, you know, another thing you mentioned um with regard to like interstate trafficking and people having to go to Michigan. 
um, or, you know, going to Michigan. It's just an interesting development. We don't have to devote too much airtime to this, but it's something we reported on in the past, just a very interesting policy development. In Kentucky, Governor Andy Bashir uh, issued an executive order to, quote, partly legalize medical marijuana, um, barring any court rulings or legislation that blocked the order, of course. Um, so what it would allow people to do, people who are diagnosed in Kentucky or have written certification from another state can have cannabis in the state, but they must be able to prove the cannabis was purchased from a legal source. So they have to save the receipt. Hear me out, Katie. The state of Kentucky is encouraging people to save evidence of federal federal trafficking of cannabis. <laughs> oh, my God. So true. I mean... Yes, you have yeah, to. Uh, uh, yeah, it is pretty I, crazy, though. They allow people, they say they may not possess more than eight ounces, so they can have up to eight ounces. Um, but yeah, like I say, um, if folks want to read laws, the- which it's like all of this, it's all contradictory. But I, you know, I think that this is the big, you know, it's people who are medical cannabis patients don't have the same right for free travel with the mm-hmm. medication as other people. Right. Uh, I have to pick up my Lexapro in another state. I can just do that. If I need to pick up cannabis, it totally depends on where I'm at. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, of course that has to do with federal law, um, and is one of the main things, you know, there's a tipping point here. Cannabis is legal in more States than not, it's especially, I mean, medically. So, um, some something has to be done here. People can't travel. People can't can't travel with their medication. And it's like, you know, we're putting them at risk to be criminalized again for accessing medicine. And I and like I said in there too, like I would love to see Illinois show an example by allowing medical patients to use their medical cards at our our dispensaries and be able for them also to shop at the medical rate because you know, thank you. Are- I can't believe we haven't brought that up until until now. Oh, that like the my, my favorite topic, which I like just want so badly. I think I have a good point on this topic, but please give background on the topic first for folks that about. Don't know okay, what so about. are we talking about the all dispensary access? Yeah, yes, all dispensary access. Okay, yeah. so right now in Illinois, there's 55 medical dispensaries. There's been this same group of medical dispensaries when it became adult use legal. All these dispensaries were granted like a dual use, like most of them you'll see is it's a rec and an adult or a rec and an adult use, a recreational and a medical dispensary. So medical patients have the option only of getting the medical rate, their savings, if they shop at one of these dispensaries. Now, how many, do you, do you know even how many in total adult use licenses we've released for dispensaries here in Illinois, whether or not they're maybe operational? It's hundreds. Right. So, um, so currently, you know, you medical patients, they only have the option to shop at these dispensaries. If you go to another adult use dispensary, a lot of them, if you say I'm a medical patient, will give a little bit of a discount, maybe 10, 15%, um, or they have certain days they'll do that. But the fact of the matter is now with adult use legalization, medical patients have a limited access to cannabis. They, they're, they have fewer options than adult use. Uh, customers and um you know why doesn't yeah. make any sense well, it's benefiting is... only the companies that have these licenses 
and this is something that came up and this is the point I think you're going to really like, like, and I want to actually ask some bud tenders that, cause I know some bud tenders that have worked in a medical cannabis dispensary that now work in, a, in an adult use dispensary. And I just want to ask like, from their standpoint, is there any technical reason that it can't be done? Like, do they not have access to biotrack from adult use dispensaries? Like what, what is going on that's preventing them? And the reason that I ask that is because I recall, and unfortunately, I don't know that I'm going to be able to find um, a story for it right now. It's hard for me to search, but what I can do is talk to Justine because she was working when this happened. When adult use was legalized, there was an issue where, and I'm sure you may remember this, um, medical patients were complaining that after adult use, the medical menu seemed awfully short and the adult men, adult use menu seemed awfully large basically from their perspective and they vo we there was enough complaints and i wasn't you know kind of an active advocate like you know at the time was just kind of a pot smoker um uh i just got the sense that enough people complained that i remember justine saying hey we just got issued guidance that like medical patients can shop off of both menus like if they see something and you go and are you familiar with what i'm talking about can i just ask you that really quick yeah, where it's like, okay, if something's not on the medical menu, but it's at the on the adult use menu, that they'll pull it over, that you can access all that stuff. Okay, I'm not crazy. Thank you. I've and been I mean, one. I've, I've been that at the dispensaries too. That they'll pull that over. Yeah. But I had someone this week talking to me about, you know, they had they had a they have like two dispensaries. It's one of the MSOs in their town. One is a dual. The other one is just a wreck. And they were looking for a product and this was an RSO product and it was at the rec location, not at the dual use location. And so they couldn't get it and they wouldn't extend the price to her if she went across town, like obviously, and because they can't do the transportation between, you know, stores easily at all, you know, why is like, and again, a product like an RSO, I mean, although like I have to say, and I've mentioned before, a lot of people are patients and using this and they don't want to be part of the medical program. They don't want to be on a list. They're worried about their gun ownership, which is a huge, another issue I didn't even put down on this, but that's a similar. Yeah, we'll add that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and so like, I want everyone to have access, but you know, this, it, it shouldn't be like that, you know, that the product that she wanted was at the adult use dispensary. So she was going to have to pay a 30% markup to get it. And, you know, patients are already paying too much. So, um, it, it totally makes sense to just let patients shop at any dispensary at the medical rate that is closest to their house. That is the product that they need. Like that's the point of this program was to get access for medical patients. And, and right now we're not seeing that, you know, I want these new businesses coming on the market to be able to compete for the business of medical patients, offer those services like curbside, offer assistance, guidance, um, you know, support for medical patients that draws the patients to you. You know, maybe when we let the market decide um, and the adult use market is a larger section of the market, there's more people buying recreationally than there is medically. Then, you know, the preferences and the trends of those people are what's determining what's available and where, and, you know, that's, we, and this is kind of touching on another issue of like ensuring access to products for medical patients consistently. 
and making it easy for them. Like right now I have patients that have to drive because they're looking for a medical dispensary. If you're downstate, you could be driving an hour or two hours round trip to get medicine just by, because that's the closest medical dispensary to you. And then if that doesn't have what you need and you need to go to the next County or something like that, just add that on. And if you're a, you know, a little old lady in pain and you're driving around spot to spot, just trying to get your medicine, it's stupid. Um, and so, yeah. you know, especially if you're passing multiple adult use dispensaries that have products that you could buy, but you need to go to the one that's going to offer you the medical rate. It, it, it really is an easy fix as far as I'm concerned. If they need access to BioTrack, what does it cost to make that happen? I heard there's $28 million around that could help facilitate that. Um, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's to me, that's, it, it, they needed to reevaluate that in light of the the adult use market and what it means, what how are patients experiencing this? And my, the feedback I get, which like I told you, you know, I mean, I think I right now have like 700 active patients right now in the medical system. And I talk to medical patients all day, every day. So all I hear is what they're dealing with. And this is a huge issue. Um, there's not a close dispensary to my house. I can't get it at the medical rate. It's available at the rec dispensary, not at the one that's medical. What do I do? And my point in bringing that up, by the way, is like, there's gotta, there's some like, just from like, I'm not like an IT professional, but I've done IT jobs. It's how I'm able to do my podcast. Like that's how I know how to set up the podcast and do video editing and stuff. Right. The reason I asked that question is because there's something there that doesn't add up to me. If you can see something on the other side and still pull it over at like the reason I asked about the bio track thing, I'm trying to get down to what access wise is preventing them from just doing it. You know what I mean? Because there's obvious like my my hypothesis is that medical license uh, now that like it may this would make sense. All of the medical cannabis dispensaries are the only ones with access to bio track. I guess, because, or, or at least that side of BioTrack where it's actually tracking patients, you know, because, because from what I understand, adult use data is not stored at all. So it's, yes, it's still seed to sale. Like, Hey, this got sold from this dispensary, but it's not like to whom, right? you know, and okay. how does this impact their allotment and such? So I just, th the yeah. reason I brought that up is it just seems like there's not anything in the way of it happening. It seems like a gimme for the state once again. Another you know, one. So. And I hope so, because to me, this is like the simplest way that we can improve access. I, whatever logistically needs to happen, it cannot be that hard. And, you know, like they should have thought of this when they were opening the market up like this, but you know, who are they asking? How is it going with the medical cannabis program? They're asking the dispensaries that have the medical licenses. Well, and it's it puts these, yeah, it puts these craft <laughs> growers in a weird place. Um, so there's confusion on this topic. So I want to start it with this, but I asked the CROO if craft cultivators could sell at the medical cannabis tax rate. And they said they can, um, but like, and that's kind of where their statement stopped. And so what I'm inferring they mean by that is that they have to sell it at a medical cannabis dispensary. And it just puts them in this rough place where maybe as a craft cultivator, the people that own the dispensary licenses, AKA what pe most people call the MSOs, even though they're not all MSOs, that is a short, that is, you know, something that's, I always like to say, they're not all MSOs. Um, I think one of them is not. <laughs> um, so uh, 
anyways, uh, they would have to deal with those people. And like that would that just doesn't make sense. So if if they you know, yeah, like you say, if you could sell it anywhere, I mean, that would also benefit these new licensees because then these new licensees like the, with the new dispensaries. Like, so you're telling these new licensees that they can't cater to the medical cannabis community. I mean, that is what you're saying legally. Right. And it's or at like, least not at those tax rates. Right. Sorry, I keep talking. No, I no, no, no. I'm I'm like completely agree with you. And to me, I feel like I want my patients to have access to craft grown cannabis. This, you know, I I have I have high hopes that we're going to see higher product quality out of some of these cultivators than we have seen. And so, why shouldn't medical patients be able to access that? Medical patients should have full access. And the, you know, to me. Exactly. Like the, you know, and I know some of these craft cultivators are interested in growing cannabis for medical patients or looking for, you know, willing to do, you know, specific strains. And that's one of the things that we've talked about too, is like, we need cultivators that are willing to supply the medical cannabis community and like commit to that so that we can start establishing a consistency of availability of product. For medical patients, especially that are looking for things like I always, you know, I, and maybe, you know, a little bit about this rumor of Shelby County community services and the sale of that, you know, that's always being talked about. But to me, those products, I recommend them to patients all the time. I have a ton of patients that depend on them, which, you know, for people that don't know, it's, um, they, they make RSOs and I had written on here, no suppositories yesterday. I saw the suppositories back on the market at Zenleaf Pilsen. I was consulting with the patient and I literally was like, oh my fucking God. And then I'm like, oh, sorry. I'm like, this product is back on the market because right. I've seen it forever. So thank you, Shelby County, for putting that back out on the market. You know, there's been some talk of it getting purchased. And, um, you know, I was concerned that access to these products wouldn't be available. And I, when I tell you, I have a ton of patients that rely on those uh, different formulas that they make. I really do. So, you know, it would be nice for patients to have some assurance that if they start using something and it's working, especially for these more critical patients, these kids I'm working with that, you know, they're, they're doing a precise regimen to, to be able to know, yes, I'll be able to access that. Some of the most uh, you know, popular products are there like CBD RSO, you know, they're like a one that's between a 10 to one and a 20 to one. And it's like that, uh, that product is when it comes back in stock, people stock up on it and they buy it. And then other people are like, I can't find it. And then they have to wait. So it would be great to be able to say, all right, we're willing to, you know, grow this many plants, produce this and like, give these people a tax break, give it, let them, give them breaks for doing this, for supplying for the medical patients. Because if we can't ensure an adequate supply, it's another barrier for people. It's really hard. And, you know, when you, what, what I see in a lot of the adult use and like whatever is going on, you know, it's every new hybrid, every new strain popping off something new all the time where some of these people want consistency of a product that's, you know, or some of these more well-established, stabilized strains, that can be consistently giving them, right? You know, some of these new hybrids, it's not going to be consistent. Whereas some of the OG stuff, it's a stabilized strain. You know, you find OG Kush, for example, I didn't mean just OG strains, but like that is a strain that, you know, it's a stabilized cultivar. People can 
are looking for that because it, they get consistent results. Uh, some of these new things you don't know, you know, and I, I, you know, to have companies that are willing to produce, you know, like traditional strains or things specifically for medical patients, we need that. So. Yeah, that would be very progressive. I will just say, you know, because that would be, I would, I would equate it to the insulin thing, except it would be even further than that because that would be defining what those things are. Yeah. Uh, which is a big thing that the cannabis industry doesn't have, like with wine. Like I couldn't sell you. I always like to use this example that I think I saw on some TV show once. I couldn't sell you Chardonnay legally and call it Moscato. I mean, probably between me and you, I could. And you'd be like, what the fuck, Cole? This is Chardonnay. But like legally, like a liquor store can't do something like that. They can't sell another example I like to use. And I might be wrong on the example. But I'm pretty sure, you know, you you can sell a whiskey, right? but you can't sell it as a bourbon. Why? Because bourbon is a thing that's that happens in Kentucky. It's this technique that you do it in a barrel and there's a definition. And while they might seem like the same drink because they're both brown liquids that don't taste that great, just my personal opinion, um, <laughs> they're not the same legally. And we don't have that with weed. And so I love the idea and I love it because it would establish that. So I just wanted to kind of get background for folks that maybe didn't understand that difference, that there's not that standard with weed yet, you know? Right. You know what? Like so much of this is like for the future stuff coming right. out, you know, you know, when I think of some of these things, like these products to me, the RSOs, um, transdermal patches yes. right now, it's Mary's medicinals is making that those get snatched up too. I know that they ramped up production because there was a period where we could not find those. Um, and then now the suppositories, which they have come back online. And I'm telling you people with gynecological issues, people with, um, bowel cancer, irritable or inflammatory bowel disorders, people with lower back pain. If you have, uh, spinal stenosis or a herniated disc in your lumbar area, seriously try a suppository. Um, and you can do a higher dose with that. You know, that's not going to cause a real heady reaction for most people, um, so that's a way to get cannabis into someone without making them too high when they need a high dose. And it's, 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 and it locally acts for certain things. So it's like, not everyone's going to use a suppository. You're not going to use that to get high. You're not going to, you know, it's not, it's not going to be the trend, but for a patient that needs it and needs to get medicine in a certain area, it's super helpful. And, and it, it's Shelby County community services making it. So again, I really like them because, they don't have sexy packaging. There's nothing fancy about that, but they put all the information on their label. You know, you're not paying for the packaging. Um, and they make stuff like suppositories, which again, it's just for patients, but for the patients that can use it, it's amazing. And I, I was floored to tell you that that was back on the market because, you know, it's those type of things. And it, again, if we rely on the market to dictate if that's available, suppositories aren't popular. They're not going to be popular for adult use patients, but there's people that need it. So like, if there is a company, Shelby County community services, wow, I'm looking at you like state, give them benefits or whoever buys that to continue making these products. Cause they are, um, it's useful. And again, like what I said about their labeling too, they put terpene content, they put full cannabinoid content on the labels. I want to see that for as many products as possible. 
and for people to see the other side of these products, this is a totally different subject, sorry, that, that do not have terpenes in them, that it, that is an isolated product. You should know because, um, there's different qualities of edibles and things that are available. And I want people to seek out full spectrum products, especially if you're a medical patient, get the bang for your buck and know what's in there. The, 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 how can people start learning this medicine for themselves? If they don't know what's in there, if they say, Hey, this strain works good for me, they should know what's the, what's the THC content, what other cannabinoids are in there and what is the terpene profile? Yeah. You I know, love that you added like having a QR code on it so that people could scan that, you know, actually every product should have that on there right to the lab report, all of that information listed. Um, that's a no brainer. And some States totally require that. Um, and I, you know, I've had problems accessing COAs that that's a certificate of analysis. And that's the lab report that every product is supposed to have. And I've, I've had patients have problems accessing it and I've had problems going in and accessing those myself. And, um, you know, for some patients I am really trying, especially these like concentrates, et cetera, I'm doing math. I want to see the numbers. Um, I need to know what I'm giving people. There are people that have a very precise regimen that they're on. Not everybody is, but, um, that's something that by law is supposed to be available for everybody. And patients should not have trouble accessing that. And why make it the dispensary's problem? Put it all online via QR code. Absolutely. Know. No, I mean, you're making great <laughs> points. Um, just because I was seeing this was near that point, many products are difficult and impossible to open for patients. I, I'm sorry, but SC Shelby County is kind of guilt, guilty of that. And I, I like, I think it's a result of the regulations, the the, yeah. the child proof packaging and how you meet that makes right. packaging very difficult for folks with dexterity issues you know, and the right. And you know, like that there's the, like, it's hard because at Walgreens, like there are ways that you can order the non-childproof cap for people that have issues. And like so many of my patients are arthritic, but you're right. Shelby County is a thing where I always have to tell people, put that, put that syringe in a warm glass of water because it's, it's too weak. Like, it, um, I have critiques about like almost every packaging, but, um, that one is often way too hard for people to manage. And then when you do, they'll put it in the warm water. That's when they end up squirting it all over it's them. too much. Yeah. 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 Um, th that's definitely like the, the, I prefer the dablicator as a way to use like, and, and, and I wish that they had ones that were even more precise for dialing in dosages. Cause the one thing I like about the Shelby County one is you can, you know, the dablicator is often you make a click and you've got 50 milligrams right there or whatever. Like I, I want a little more control, but the dablicator itself is like, to me, easier for patients to use. So like, I do like that. And that, you know, like, you know, for some patients I've, I've switched them over and I'm getting, you know, telling them to check out the, um, arise full, uh, FSHO. Like that's, that's another alternative I would say, cause that's a little easier to use, but it's, it's things like that where other, um, like, yes, I get the childproof packaging, but is there a way for medical patients? Can medical patients who need to access um, products that are a little bit easier to open and honestly do a focus group? It's like half these gummies are too hard to open. If it's in a little tin, um, it's hard. So to me, again, when we were making products for patients, you know, in my ideal world, if I lived in like, Illinois instead of Illinois, I could be phoning into my, you know, 
pharmacists over at the dispensary and saying, I want, you know, a tincture and I want it to be this ratio and I want it to be sugar-free. And I want, just like I could do it, a compounding pharmacy here with any other drug. And, you know, or I want to make it topical for my patient at this strength and they can come pick it up and their name's on it and they can, you know, easily open it. That's, that's the dream, but it's like, we're not there yet, but at least bare minimum, you're right. Like these, the RSOs, big culprit of being hard to use a lot of the edible things hard to use well, or the- I even i wasn't even trying to diss the the but you made a great points i didn't even freaking think about those i was trying to you know the packaging where you gotta like pull it but then push in and it's like it's like and you gotta, gotta tap your head and, and do i've this never and- opened one of those properly i've had to rip them open every single time like an animal because it's like the minute i tug it breaks and it's like yeah you shouldn't have to be touching in three places to open this. Like it's so hard to access like physically. And then once you get it in your hand, it's like, can I even open this packaging up question? So, you know, those are little things that again, like as a nurse coming from this, as when I know what struggles my patients have, it's sometimes simple things like that, that are easy fixes that could make a big difference in, in people's experience with cannabis or like these products. And, you know, some of these companies are, um, I think more receptive to that than others, as far as, you know, like, do you want to hear what somebody has to say? And it's like, look, I have no, I have nothing to gain here except for my patients being able to like use your product, which I love what's in there, but the, you're making it too hard for us to get it out of the packaging, like just simple stuff. Um, Ooh, Oh, I, I just see what you just put in, in here too. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. So so I don't know. I know we have so much that we have to talk about and I don't even know, but we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, I, I I do want to start wrapping up here soon. Um, but you know, um, I want to give some airtime to a few quick ideas, uh, that, that you have in this document, allow people and more, we're going to put this document in the show notes for, if we didn't already mention that for folks. So, um, you know, yeah, look, look forward to that or look in the podcast description for that. Rather, there's a link where you can download this document and, and please share them with, with your friends and, and your representatives, the people that can make a difference. Um, so allow people to be caregivers for more than one patient, reduce the caregivers fees further. Um, pediatric medical patients should get more than one free caregiver card. Anything to add on those points there? Uh, No, I just, I think that's, especially caregivers should be able to be for more than one patient. I mean, I have parents with two children that use this, you know, you could have, you could be a caregiver for multiple people. You do have some. That we need to be like policing. Right. You do. I I did just notice you've got a really interesting note that I didn't know that medical, pediatric medical patients have severe conditions and their families are often already bearing a high cost burden for medical care. Plus they have to take extra steps to be approved for the program. That's what I didn't know. Two certifications required, which often means more appointment, uh, more appointment fees. And you know what I mean? For these people too, it's like, you know, you have two primary caregivers for the kid. One of them might be watching the kid. The other one can run out and get the medicine. Let, Let both parents or grandparents or caregivers, whoever have cards because, um, the patient themselves is not able to go into the dispensary ever. So uh, the parents, you know, like, why are we charging these extra fees? They've already had to have a, a these extra steps. So um, I think people would appreciate that. And it, um, 
it would just make their lives easier. This is already like, you know, these, these are parents of real sick kids. Right. We need low cost of free cannabis testing for patients who grow their own. The state could give a credit or grant to a business who agrees to offer this service. Some grow shops are already doing this for a low cost. And might I add, you know, they're doing it at a low cost because it's not that accurate of a test, folks. It might be when the machine first comes in, but it needs to be calibrated and it's nothing like the machinery they use at the labs in the state of Illinois, which is like, uh, I can't even think of what it's called right now. It's some science shit, though. Let's just say that. It's, it's modern miracle of science. They, I think they could even, it was an early way to test for COVID. That's one of the things the labs told me back in the day. But um, anyways, uh, I just want to make sure we give airtime to some of the really good points you have here. Um, home delivery, you know, oh, yeah. we should have that. I mean, there are many different instances in which you say, do you want to run through those? Like why it would be a like where are my notes? Uh, right. It says I number one, homebound patients don't have to rely on caregivers to access medicine. There are a lot of people that don't have someone that they can ask to be that caregiver. That's why are we making patients have to rely on someone else? Like if if you can't leave your house, there's a lot of older people they don't drive anymore. Have the medicine delivered. It's working great in other states. Um, it will allow, this is a big one for me because I'm trying to work with patients in nursing homes, long-term care facilities. Cannabis can really improve their safety profile if they can get off some medications and switch it out for some cannabis. But right now, if they're in a long-term care facility, again, they have to access a caregiver only private pay ones might even be considering doing this. Um, it's a whole nother situation, uh, something that I'm working on right now, but if they could have delivery and these facilities could just take the medication, they put it right in, um, to the, you know, with the other meds and they did, they give it to the patients, um, you know, some that are willing to do this. Um, so this would facilitate that this would make it way easier. Cause right now I'm trying to facilitate a bunch of patients to get caregivers to go out and do this. So you can't have the staff do it. So delivery would make a big difference. Um, this is totally, it would make it easier for patients who live in remote areas of the state and are currently driving, like I said before, several hours round trip to access cannabis, they'd be able to get to a medical dispensary. So like these, there's, there's not a lot. And that similarly, people that live in the city who don't have a car and might not have a dispensary walking distance or one that is easily accessible by public trans can just order their cannabis to be delivered. They, they, you know, just makes sense. Like I said, so many, you know, I had a, a friend who years ago was in a ski accident up and he lived in a remote place in Colorado and he had a medical cannabis drop-off drive up the mountain and drop off his medical cannabis for him. And I was like, that's the coolest thing when he sent me the picture. And if they can do it and and where he lives is at the, uh, like over 11,000 feet. In a fucking mountain. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Again, Colorado has been one of the OG states, but sure. to me, home delivery is great. I know there's some bills being introduced for it. We haven't seen the text of those bills or anything. You know, we don't know what this medical cannabis delivery bill that's being introduced, what the details of it are. What I hope when it is introduced is that it um, allows for these social equity transporter licenses and these new businesses that have come out to get in on the um, home delivery because, you know, they're 
I, I know you've covered this a lot on the podcast. You know, people have been waiting years to be able to to use the licenses that they won their social equity applicants. And I want any bill that is being introduced to benefit also those businesses because it that because it's the right thing to do. That's what I want. Yeah. You know, businesses deserve a fair crack at that, and it could really help patients. So, win win, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, f- I feel like we got this. There's, there's a point about travel. You said it's an important, it's a federal issue and an important one we should mention and advocate for pa- patients can't travel with their medicine. It's kind of something we've already talked about, but I wanted to make sure we give mention to it. Um, Illinois should set an example by allowing reciprocity, brilliant fucking point, um, right. for out of state medical cards, Michigan does it, but right now what we're forcing medical cannabis patients to do from other States or just, just the people that are using cannabis for medicinal purposes, we're forcing them to pay exorbitant adult use prices, right? The 30% taxes plus 30, 30 plus percent taxes, you know, cause it, it's that graduated scale. Um, 30 plus. Yeah. And that if you are a medical patient, 18, 19, 20 years old, you can't access a dispensary because you have all. to go to adult use and you're not old enough. So we are there. There are patients that that age, you know, they might be traveling alone, have no caregiver, and they're not able to access cannabis whatsoever because of their age, even though they're a medical patient. So just points to think about who's being affected. And, you know, hey, hey, more people that are cannabis patients will travel to uh, Chicago if they know they can use that medical card, I'm pretty sure, you know, or these younger people. And either way, it's the right thing to do. Like, you know, we need to facilitate people being able to travel freely with this. And that's one way. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No THC caps. That's a big one for me. Yeah. Yeah. And increase the THC potency because we do have a THC cap right now, 100 milligrams per per edible product Um, in topicals and tinctures. I think like you, yeah, topicals and tinctures. Somehow RSO gets around it. I'm not complaining. I love it. But like, why don't we do the same thing for the rest of the edibles? It it only makes sense. Totally. I mean, right. You know, it's like there's, and again, too, if people could buy, and I set up to 500 milligrams in a thing, whatever. I mean, I wouldn't, I would. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, I, I think more of this, like, you know, telling people there are people that need high sure. levels of THC. We cannot put caps on that. You know, like, again, this is more of the government interfering in a medical decision, in my opinion. And when it comes to the, you know, limiting to a hundred milligrams per edible, um, like it, or per package of edibles, if you could buy 500 milligrams at a time or a, a thousand milligrams with that, you know, you're going to save money when you can buy in bulk, so to speak. And it's healthy. Jesus Christ, these edibles are so sugary and stuff. Like there's very few like options that aren't sugared the fuck out. So That's for lack of better thing. words. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. And, and there's a lot of people that are trying to access this that are, they don't want sugar. And uh, I mean, again, a lot of my pediatric patients, these are kids with epilepsy or kids that have severe um, autism. And yeah. a, part of their protocol is often like they're on a keto diet. You know, kids with seizures are often on keto diet. They aren't eating sugar, though a gummy or some kind of an edible is often for me only one of the only ways I can get the kids to eat it. So, you know, when it comes to kids, I do a tincture and edible, but whatever helps, but it's hard to find a non-sugary edible. That's not a, a pill or a capsule to swallow. So more variety and, you know, this, it is a medicine. So like, cool. I love eating gummies and chocolates too, but, um, 
we need more options. You know, often it's like, you'll see one or two tinctures, that's it. And you know, it might not be what you're looking for. I want to see a THC tincture, a CBD tincture, at least a one-to-one, you know, I'd like to see more variety there. Um, and you know, in multiple brands, because that to me is the most versatile way to dose cannabis for the widest variety of individuals is like the oil and buying that 100 milligrams at a time. When some people take 100 milligrams in a day. Right. You know, and in that case, you know, that's when you can start saying, okay, switch up to the RSL because it's concentrated, but it's to me, even the topicals, like a hundred milligrams in a topical I don't know. You know, I'd prefer to be able to see 500 mil. I'd, I'd like to see some stronger topicals available for people. Um, right. Variety. So like capping this stuff doesn't make any sense. This is, again, they're worried about um, kids getting a hold of this and eating it all or anybody taking too much at once and having a problem. Let's do public education. Let's not um, be, again, so controlling over people. I mean, nobody's telling me um, you can only buy alcohol in a shot form. I can go buy a handle bottle of vodka if I want. And nobody's wondering what I'm doing with that. Um, and you know, like why are, why are we limiting this stuff? Cause a hundred milligrams is not a lot for a medical patient who takes cannabis daily. Why do you have to come back to the dispensary every freaking two days, you know, or, right. uh, I just think it'd be more affordable and easier for people if they could have more at once, you know, it's, um, again, like the government kind of being controlling here and, and, and probably worried about some things, liability, people getting hurt, but again, it's cannabis. Let's educate people. Uh, if I drink the whole bottle of vodka, you would never see me again, you know? Yeah, and we know not to do that, right? That's why we know not to do that. <laughs> exactly. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of stuff showing like, um, you know, kids, little kids that like, there was one study, God, I wish I could remember the details right now where it was, it was basically like anecdotal evidence showing a bunch of like kids three years old and under who had eaten straight hash. And like the worst thing that happened to these kids is they like pass out a few of them, you know, they went to the hospital, the parents were worried, nothing was wrong with them. They all survived the next day. They were okay. And this is them eating like a brick of hash. So, and that's a three-year-old. That's how safe cannabis is. <laughs> Not ideal that that would happen. And also I was surprised, like, what child would be like, mm, but you never know. Um, but you know, like this, this was like a series of anecdotal studies just showing how truly worst case scenario isn't that dire. So, um, the, when people bring up the caps and stuff and, you know, that's usually these anti-drug people, they want to start with this and then they want to limit access to inhaled forms of medicine, which, you know, a lot of people use inhaled medicine you got to look at this from a harm reduction perspective. And for some people, it just makes sense. A, a person who's nauseous and throwing up, inhaled medicine is usually the best thing for them. Ingesting something isn't going to work. Holding something in your mouth, maybe a topical solution could help with that. But to me, the OG, inhaled medicine, it's instant. It's going to help best with nausea. Let's not control that stuff. You know, we when we start- yeah, yeah. You know, like there's reasons why people use that and there's, there's, there's applications. And again, it's a medical thing. This is medical cannabis, you know, that we're talking about, at least right now, we need, we need to let this be a, a decision between a provider and a patient, really a patient with guidance from a provider, because again, we don't prescribe, 
we are guiding people. We are recommending, we are working with people to use cannabis safely. Um, and a lot of this has to do with like trusting people to um, make good choices for themselves and not being controlling as to what they can do based on who whose idea of what is a good level of THC. Um, I don't have, I don't see any proof where you can tell me th that there is a, you know, level that we should be capping this at when I know that a lot of patients need high doses. So I won't harp on that. I know, <laughs> I know, I knew I would, that you and I would have this conversation going hardcore. I'm like, oh, just me and you talking about this list of complaints we've been knocking away on. This is going to be <laughs> a great conversation. We totally are on the same page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, this is awesome. And we've only got a few more topics to, to mention. So I figure, I figure we can knock them out if you're all right with that. Um, Cool. Uh, the demand study. You, you so you mentioned supply issues, and you are referencing the demand study because I'm guessing you've heard what I've heard, which is that the demands, depending on the the results of the demand study, the state could actually issue more cannabis licenses, and I believe that would and could, sorry, rather, I don't mean to say would, but could include more medical cannabis licenses. Or at least that's what I've heard. I'm not again. I just. Oh. That's what right. I heard. So on April 22nd, I emailed the state of Illinois. It was in our follow-up episode, uh, which is in the podcast description. Um, but uh, let's let's just read this really quick. The disparity in demand study. I, I said, I forgot to ask Danielle about this. If she could send me an update slash answer on this, I would appreciate it. That was on April 22nd, 2020. They said, we are in the final stages of securing a vendor to conduct the disparity study. I will send additional information once the contract is finalized. Of course, there's been turnover since then, and so I haven't heard back, but I'll follow up on that. Um, just wanted to say that that was the state of affairs in April of 2020. Um, just for a quick note on the equity study, because I actually spoke to a person from the University of Illinois, and I will be speaking to them again in the future um uh about this study so if you want to check that out that's an episode with justin Leiby. i'll add that to the podcast description um uh that is was apparently due soon but i've not heard anything about that so you know but but at the time again that's why i'm bringing this up but the state of affairs at that time was that they were hopeful they would release a complete report before the end of the fiscal year which was june 30th I don't know if that happened, but um, hear anything either. Um, Justin did share some data from it, and in, in the episode that I'm referencing. So, if folks are interested, there's a scoop if the report hasn't been published still. Um, any thoughts on that before we segue to firearms and license plates, etc.? Um, just that in that you know we can't make any what we re we really do need this demand and disparity study, and it's like I've been wanting to, and I've said this many times. We need to be asking specific questions to patients. How far are they driving? How much are they paying for cannabis? What are their specific issues? And it's like, like I've said many times, I'm more than willing to send out a survey, but like, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. The state has the information from every medical patient. The state needs to seek this. The state is required to seek this information. And from there, then we'll have the actual data and facts to to make, you know, and I, and I really do believe when they do, and if they do do a, do a good effort to actually survey these patients, the stuff that we've been talking about today 
is going to come up. It's going to be backed by what patients are saying. And um, it's just, it's absolutely necessary. And from my understanding, like this was due a long time ago and was never done. And I don't know, like I said, there was turnover, COVID happened, and that's been a you know, I mean, it's just a reality. A lot of these organizations or agencies were dealing with pressing matters, dealing with the pandemic. So I can see why things might have gotten pushed back. But yet again, um, okay, let's make it, let's make this happen now. I really think that it's, um, there's no, we can't make any progress until we actually have this data and information. Like you and I could say what we're saying right now, but if they don't have that to back it, nothing's going to get done. So that's all I have to say about it. We need the demand study, please. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> these last two points relate to one another. You know, I know some folks may have strong opinions for or against firearms, but um, here's the bottom line. The Illinois State Police have access to medical cannabis data and they can do things with that data. So one of the things they've been able to do in the past was just scan your license plate and see that you were a cardholder. From what I understand, that's no longer the case. But on the same token, I've been told that they still have access to the database. So I don't understand how that jives. Like maybe it just doesn't pop up when they scan the license plate anymore. I don't completely understand that. But let me just give you this the answer that I gave from that I got from the state of Illinois regarding law enforcement and their access to the medical cannabis patient registry. Illinois State Police were first allowed to access to the patient registry under the Compassionate Use of Medical Cannabis Act. The CROO was not involved in the drafting of that legislation. However, our understanding is that ISP serves as a reference for local law enforcement when there are questions about a person's status as a medical patient. For example, if a medical cannabis patient is stopped by law enforcement while they are in possession of more than 30 grams of usable cannabis, the legal adult use possession limit, but not their medical cannabis registration card. And she said, or they said, I understand this happens, but I have to stop here to remind patients to have their medical card on them at all times. Local law enforcement may contact ISP to verify the individual's medical status. Similarly, local law enforcement may contact ISP if they suspect someone is growing cannabis to ensure that the individual is a medical patient and therefore allowed to cultivate at home. And so the last thought I'll say before I open it up to you, Katie, and is that the the other way that this, from what I understand, the, the, the way this data is used, like so when you go to purchase a firearm, there's an eight, you go through a background check and there is a question about cannabis use and drug use and however you answer it from what i understand if you are a medical cannabis card holder the state of illinois has like a cursory review of a firearm background check before or maybe while the atf is doing their work again i don't completely understand this but from what i understand what the state of illinois what the state police do is they just politely inform the atf that uh, maybe the individual lied on that question or they did tell the truth, but either way, they can't get a firearm. And so medical cannabis patients, from what I understand, that was a long way of saying medical cannabis patients cannot purchase firearms from a federally licensed firearm dealer. Um, they can purchase through private sale while that's still allowed. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that goes soon and, you know, 
funny you mention it. Bob Morgan is a person that's championing these assault weapons bans, which we will talk about on the show soon. I've got an attorney, uh, kind of a new subject for us. It'll be interesting. But um, Bob Morgan, I just, you know, with this firearm stuff, please consider if you're going to ban private sales, which they tend to call the they call it the gun show loophole, by the way. That's what they call private sales, because that's essentially how the gun show works right you can you can go to a gun show and make private sales without a background check if we incorporate background checks into private sales that means medical cannabis patients essentially would not be able to purchase firearms anymore if i'm understanding it correctly you know if you that's would be my understanding as well so and now my understanding is also that like if you go to apply for a FOID card here in Illinois, they're not cross-referencing whether or not. So you could have a FOID card. Correct. And a CCL. Purchase the, and a concealed carry. Okay. Yep. But when you go to purchase, that's what the problem is. Now, though, I think that's if you already have a FOID card. And I hate to say that the state mentioned something to me about this last week about there's something and maybe it's Maybe if it's you're going to apply for that after, like you have your medical card and then you go to apply for it, that you have to, there's something where you have to wait a year. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where there's, you have to wait a year of not being a medical patient. Maybe this has to do with purchasing firearms or something. I think it has to do with purchasing because, uh, because yeah, something about the access, it won't be wiped from whatever they can act. That's for what I've heard. Okay, right. Okay, that's like, I was kind of confused on that. So it's still around purchasing. It does. You can have a FOID card. Um, if you ha- already have a FOID card, they're not gonna like when you go to apply for a medical right. cannabis card, flag you, tell you you have to get rid of your FOID card. None of that. It's all around the eight the interfacing with the ATF, the federal firearms, where there's a problem. And you know, again, it's back to the stupid law the the incorrect scheduling of cannabis is federally which we know is just like a big issue but for me again yeah whatever you feel about gun ownership left or right um this is a civil rights issue for medical patients it's it's one thing that is stopping people from actually um joining the program because they're worried about this um a lot of those people are also veterans that should be able to join this program but are worried about their gun rights. And, you know, it's, um, just show me the evidence that somebody who uses cannabis is more likely to do violence, um, have a problem in any way with firearms. They're not again, asking you if you like drink a bottle of vodka every night or, you know, anything else it's in, or, you know, if you, if you are a recreational client, it's fine. It's just the medical cannabis patients who have agreed to be on this so-called list that they use cannabis, which some medical cannabis patients use very little cannabis at all too. It just doesn't make sense. Like the whole thing, um, it's, it's a federal matter clearly, but, um, it's a, it's a civil rights issue. And, you know, I mean, these NRA people are pretty crazy at getting what they want. Why don't you guys take up the mantle and defend, um, medical cannabis patients from being able to access guns. Cause that, that is a problem for a lot of people. Um, so like, I'm not a huge NRA proponent whatsoever, but, um, clearly they're effective in their yeah, lobby, you, lobby yeah. for this. 
Yeah, you're just anybody that like want to says if you want to say you're for firearms rights, like take this issue on, you know. Right, because it, it, I mean, this is this is a real issue, and these are patients, and you know, these are people that are also willing to um, legally purchase a gun and legally like be a medical patient yeah. in a legal and official way. These are rule followers and people that are following the law. Like these aren't your problem individuals. Well, here's a final thought. Um, my original, my doctor, like my primary care doctor who has since passed. And I, I wish I would have been able to interview him on the show. Um, he told me, he, he initially told me no on my card and not because he knew, he knew I smoked weed and stuff. He just said, Cole, you don't want this. You're going to regret this. Anyway, he's not like a firearm junkie. He's just talking about this, the, the concept of putting myself on a state list and I've admitted that I consume cannabis on a quote unquote medicinal level. He said, you don't, you don't want to do this, but if you want to do this, go ahead and do it. We can do it. But I don't think you want to do this and I think you're going to regret it. And I hope he's wrong, but there are instances in which uh, I don't like that I'm on a registry. So I'll just, I think that's a, interesting thought to end on uh, you know i know that the state has to do what they can do to track these things and taxes and whatever else but conceptually i think it's really simple i think we're overcomplicating it you know um it, it doesn't have to be this complicated you know some of our proposals we're trying to work within the system that we have but really when it comes down to it i think this is kind of a big like i said big picture thought to, for people to ponder like it doesn't have to be this complicated Cannabis should be treated like coffee, tomatoes, you name it, because it's like those products. It's 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 very similar to all of those products. You know, um, you can have too much coffee, you can have too much cannabis. It can be unpleasant, but guess what? Just take some time and uh, drink some water, and you're going to be all right. <laughs> so. I mean, it, like there is evidence showing that it is um, harder to quit coffee than it is to quit cannabis, and that it is like higher, more addictive than cannabis is. Coffee, as that an example. And how many people use it every day? It is a drug. It does have effects in the body, but it's available. Absolutely. Widely. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm having my nightly cough, a cup of coffee when we're talking. <laughs> right. So Don't talk to me before I've had my coffee. Exactly. <laughs> it's a great, you know, that's a great, that's a great place to end because, you know, that really is the truth. We look at all these regulations, rules, loopholes, everything that someone has to go through to access cannabis, who's a medical patient, um, you know. I, I agree with you. I would like to see this really loosen up and become more clear cut, easy. And again, that's like stepping away and releasing our desire to control and police this and our fear of this as like a, a reefer madness, negative substance that's going to create the decline of society. You're looking at the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, We'll throw links uh, for your stuff in the podcast description. I'll ask you to send me those, but uh, go ahead, plug if people want a medical card or whatever you want to plug. Oh yeah, yeah. If you um, we you know at a Modern Compassionate Care is my clinic. If you want a medical card, if you want guidance, um, we also offer mental health services, um, therapy, and uh, we offer ketamine assisted therapy now too. So we are also branching out into the psychedelic space. Um, but uh, come see me. You know, I work with people when it comes to prices veterans, 
low income, all the people that I think should get a break with the state is going to get a break at modern compassionate care. Um, also people that work in the cannabis industry, you too, you guys are my people and, um, you serve the patients. So we like to give back to you as well. So moderncompassionatecare.com. I'm on the Northwest side of the city, but I see people throughout the state and countrywide. Um, but more so too, I mean, come see me if you want to be treated, but also if you have complaints, if you have thoughts on this, I mean, obviously reach out to Cole, you can reach out to me too. Um, hopefully after this podcast, I am still an appointed member of the medical cannabis advisory board for the state. We haven't met yet. This board is still being formed, but, um, myself and the other clinicians, advocates, and patients that are on that board are very interested in, um, not just expanding the list of approved conditions, but bringing these issues to the state in an official way where we make a recommendation by a government appointed board. So that's what I'm hoping to do as part with this um, document that we're working on that you guys will see. So feel free to reach out to me. You know, I'm Katie at moderncompassionatecare.com. You can email me or give me a call. Cole will post my stuff. So I, Cole, I really appreciate this. This is like a great conversation. I'm glad we got to talk. And um, I think we really did need the time to break it down. And I think we covered a lot. So um, cheers to that because we did it. That was a big thing. But I appreciate you working on this list with me. I appreciate you bringing awareness to this issue. Like you are just such a great advocate for medical patients in this state. And this is a conversation that I, you know, hope is starting here and you know, reverberates out and, and like yes. medical patients make your voice heard, you know, that the government needs to hear you. There's advocacy groups. And if I can make another plug to, to organizations that I work with, if you're a medical cannabis patient or just someone that supports cannabis, um, two great local organizations, Chicago Normal, um, Illinois also has a chapter two. I'm, I'm just a member of Chicago Normal. Um, their, their general meetings are the first Sunday of the month on Zoom or we meet in um, public. You can find them on social media. And the other organization is the Cannabis Equity Illinois Coalition. Um, our general meetings for that are bi-weekly every other Thursday night. Plus there's other, you know, um, policy groups and stuff you can get involved in. But if you're someone, number one, to just show up to make your voice heard, if you're interested in getting into the industry, you know, if you want to advocate, um, it's a great group of people. Um, you know, I've made a ton of connections and friends just doing this, but they also, you know, they care about these issues for medical patients. So um, supporting those organizations, either by joining as a member, donating, showing up at the meetings is a great way to, you know, keep pushing this work forward because the more voices that are saying this, especially from you patients, the more they're going to listen. They're going to have to, at least I think. Thank you so much for your time today, Katie. Oh my God, you're so welcome. All right, folks, we hope you found value in this episode. We'll see you next time.